VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, October the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone or give us a call and in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709 273 Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So first bit of Captain Obvious for the week. It was absolutely teeming rain when I drove in this morning to the office. And, of course, the state, the blatantly obvious once again. The ruts are full of water. The potholes are full of water. So, you know, the risks associated with both. So do what you got to do. And I see the first dusting of snow up in Labrador City this morning. So... Here it comes. I don't know how you gauged your schedule over the weekend. Mine was basically about when I was going to watch rugby. (laughs) We were blessed as rugby fans, and there's a pretty strong rugby community here in this province. So four absolute brilliant quarterfinal matches, two of which are instant classics. But I guess the quarterfinal ceiling for the Irish continues as they dropped one to New Zealand. The Southern Hemisphere dominate. Argentina moves through. New Zealand moves through. South Africa moves through. The only European country left is England. They're in tough, though, too. They get South Africa. The defending champions, Argentina and New Zealand, so it looks a lot like South Africa and New Zealand in the coming final in a couple of weeks. All right, uh, on the tennis front, Leila Annie Fernandez. Back in 2021, she's a Canadian female tennis player. She made it all the way to the finals of the U.S. Open. She's had a couple of pretty tough years, but she won her third WTA tournament over the weekend with a victory at the Hong Kong Open. So she's been ranked as high as 13 in the world, went into this tournament 60, so she cracks back into the top 50. So congratulations to Leila Fernandez. Uh, Let's keep going. All right, for those who are absolutely hardcore runners, even if you've just driven from, let's just say, downtown into Cape Spear, you know the hilly features of that particular stretch of road. And so there's a race, as you know, called the Cape to Cabot Race. 20 kilometers and a lot of hills, as mentioned. Run from Cape Spear to Cabot Tower. Took place over the weekend on a beautiful day. There was hundreds of runners apparently partook in uh, this particular competition. Ben Collingwood, overall first place. One hour and 15 minutes. Unbelievable. And on the ladies' side, Ann Johnson. Everyone knows Ann Johnson, who's a runner or watches the running uh, events here in the province. An hour and 23 minutes, so absolutely unbelievable competition there. Good stuff. One very cool story, heartwarming story, before we get into some of the real news items of the day. I want to say good morning to Paul Cook. Paul Cook is a former firefighter. He had a spinal cord injury, and at the time, told by doctors, you may never walk again. So when he went through the surgery, the physio, the training, he and a couple of his buddies, so he did the five-kilometer trap blind marathon up in Happy Valley Goose Bay. So his buddies, John Scotty Lormer and Martin Dyson, they participated with him, and of course, you couldn't smack the grin off Paul Cook's face. You know, to be told, you'll never walk again, and here he is, uh, competing in a 5K race. So the boss, as is absolutely apropos, They crossed the finish line together. So way to go, Paul Cook. Bravo to you, and I'm sure the support you got from your buddies was a big part of your recovery, and we wish you nothing but the best in the future. All right, so some good news over the weekend regarding housing. Lots of uh, issues still have to be broached, of course. But some four couples were given keys to units for Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation uh, uh, facilities. It's good. You know, a couple of interesting things. You know, we all think the low-hanging fruit here is to make sure that as quick as possible, we renovate and reopen some of these shuttered units that is operated by the NLHC. So they also went on to say that four couples were chosen initially because they didn't want to split them up. 
you know, going back to the shelter system. All that has been offered with the hope to find permanent housing, not just for folks who are in the tent encampment uh, across the street from Confederation Building. And by the way, there's a 12 o'clock rally or protest scheduled for today. I don't know if the rain's going to hamper that at all, but it would be fitting to be out there in these types of elements. It really does highlight just how precarious a spot people find themselves in without a safe place, a dry, warm place to call their own. So that uh, rally is coming up. Okay. So the Premier, we're told, with the news released this morning, is going to make an announcement this morning about what they're calling a five-point plan. The housing issue is not new. It's been brewing for quite some time. It has become certainly more severe in the recent past throughout the course of the pandemic. So, okay, a five-point plan, fair enough. Let's hope it comes with the actual action. Because plans, because we've heard, you know, it was as long ago as former Lieutenant Governor Frank Fagan delivering in the House of Assembly the speech from the throne in 2017, talking about the government's focus on housing. And here we are. The plan that they were talking about that day still hasn't come to pass. We'll see what this plan entails when we get to it this morning. So you want to take it on. Let's go. And curiously, you know, there has been more federal conversation about housing issues, even though they've long said, and the prime minister himself said, well, it's provincial and municipal jurisdiction. There is a $4 billion housing accelerator fund that's operated by the Canadian or the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corp. Minister of Housing federally, Sean Fraser, has called out the city of St. John's a little bit. He says their application falls short of the ambition he was hoping to see. So the city applied for $2 million, reflecting the desire to build 91 additional units. 91 won't cut it. Minister O'Regan is also chiming in on this about upping our game or amping up the plan. You know, makes uh, reference to the fact that they partnered with the city of Halifax to build 10,000 units over the next decade. We know the numbers here. They're clear. Once again, from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corp, 10,000 units won't get it done if the forecast is accurate. They're talking about 60,000 units over the next six years, not 10,000. I know that's just the city of Halifax. And, of course, the Northeast Avalon will be pressed in the housing concern, not to say there's not a housing issue right across the province, because there is. So the minister federally kind of calling out the city. They say, Mayor Breen, they appreciate the feedback, and they'll go through it and see what uh, they can maybe go back to the drawing board and ask for more money with the intention to build more units. All right. It does not incorporate the concerns we've heard from municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador about smaller municipalities and their ability to even fill out the paperwork to file an application for some of those monies out of the $4 billion housing accelerator fund. So there's a lot to the housing issue. You want to take it on. Let's go. And I mentioned the fact that four couples were chosen to find permanent housing out of the tent city because they didn't want to split them up. Let's see and hope that that becomes the same issue when we talk about seniors entering long-term care and the need to keep couples together. Some of those stories have been absolutely heartbreaking. And, of course, the outcome for the seniors split up after decades together has been really quite sad. So if we're going to have that kind of approach with housing, let's make sure it extends itself in full in every case to seniors entering into long-term care. And I know it's on the VOCM.com website, and I think Brian Medor spoke to it in the news, but it's the issue of people that have been giving a 30-day notice that their rent is going to be hiked in the very short order if they're living in a privately owned and operated personal care home. And some of the, uh, the rental hikes are really quite extraordinary. This one lady who actually called this program last week, her mother, or a family member anyway, lives in one of these homes in paradise. 30-day notice for a 14% hike, and that's over $400. The issue there is, like, 
these homes are not regulated under the Residential Tenancy Act, which of course wouldn't settle or solve all of these issues with a forecasted rate hike or rent hike, but it would give more time for preparation. So these care homes are governed by the Home Care Operational Standards, which does not address rent increases. So even that baby step to bring those homes in under the Residential Tenancies Act will at least give us a starting point to extend the amount of notice that they'll get. Again, it won't do away with any of these rent increases, but it is a good starting point to get to a better place, I think, on that front. So I think that's a bigger story than we give it consideration for at this moment. All right. So sometime after the Premier presents the five-point plan, the House of Assembly reopens today for the fall sitting. You know all the top issues, and you can take them on however you see fit here this morning. Healthcare, housing, cost of living, and there's a lot inside all of those. So Minister, uh, pardon me, yeah, the government house leader, Minister of Justice, Public Safety, John Hogan, also talking about advancing issues regarding poverty, particularly child poverty. It's not that long ago we were the envy of the country with our poverty reduction plan. And it didn't get, I don't know if there was just a rebrand, but they kind of got away from it a little bit. And consequently, we've seen the outcomes here. So if you want to pick one item or another inside the House of Assembly, because there's no end of the conversations we can have. And of course, the PCs will have a new leader sitting in that position when the House reopens this afternoon. Tony Wakeham. So Mr. Wakeham won. The PC leadership uh, race that took place was settled at the Sheraton Hotel here in the city of St. John's. Uh, on the weekend. So on the first ballot, Mr. Parrott, Lloyd Parrott, dropped off as the third place vote getter. So it went down to the second ballot with Mr. Man- Eugene Manning and the eventual winner, Tony Wakeham. Just a couple of quick comments. I didn't say much about the leadership race for the obvious reasons in the last little while. We have spoken to certainly Mr. Wakeham and Mr. Manning, but it was a pretty low key race. And it was certainly non-divisive, which I think is to the benefit of the Tories. Now, who knows when the next election is going to be? There's all sorts of rumors and rumbles out there all the time. But when you think about it and think back to some leadership races in the past that were absolutely divisive and were very harshly contested, it comes to mind Roger Grimes and John Nefford, for instance. And, of course, all of that is captured in the book by Sonia B. Glover about that particular race and a look behind the curtains. So Mr. Wakem will sit as leader of the PCs today. Very quickly. You know, so the House is only going to sit until November 16th. There's a couple of constituency days. But one comment that I'd like to flesh out a little further with Mr. Wakeham is talk about the need to maybe change how the House of Assembly does business. No argument here, because there's a little bit of time wasted in there with the shenanigans and some of the juvenile barbs back and forth. Question period is not really about getting answers. It's simply about asking questions. So I'd like to know what Mr. Wakeham means by that. Because, yeah, we probably do have to change the way we do business. So we'll see. If Mr. Wakeham is interested in joining us this morning, we can maybe get down to that a little bit further. And last week, we are talking about the federal NDP convention and leadership review that took place once again, three-day stint in the city of Hamilton, Ontario. It wasn't all of You didn't have to be too clever to kind of forecast the outcome. So, yes, there was a leadership review, and Mr. Singh, Jugmeet Singh, got an 81% approval. 81 sounds really, really high, but there are some questions out there, and one is an ultimatum regarding the ongoing confidence and supply agreement between the federal liberals and the NDP. And everybody who watches politics knows that's the only reason, period, that the federal liberals are still in play and still in place. So, 
I thought and I said that it's going to all come down to universal pharmacare, and it absolutely has. So unanimously voted on the floor, and it was the most important uh, piece of amendments that was brought forward, or pardon me, the most important and or considered resolution. They basically have said, this is it. The gauntlet has been laid down. Unless the Liberals follow through with their plan on universal pharmacare, you may indeed see them pull the plug on this confidence and supply agreement and trigger a federal election. So how quickly any of that can take place? Fair ball. But again, yes, whopping big numbers. When you look at any of the reviews and reports that have been done over the years, it comes with a huge price tag. But every single time, it points to savings overall. Every time. Not just because there was a, a recent uh, liberal-appointed review or commission review, by, and it was conducted by Der, uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins and his team, but every single time, going all the way back to the 40s and 50s. So the, the NDP have basically said, if the, the universal single-payer single system is not brought forward, that might be the end of this particular minority parliament led by the federal liberals. Anyway, you want to take it on? I think we can do something about that today. And the federal government took a bit of a knock on Friday on a Supreme Court ruling that was handed down. And this was basically put forward aggressively by the province of Alberta. And it was all about the federal government's, what, it be, what was once known as Bill C-69, and is now known as the Federal Impact Assessment uh, Agency. The court, in the Coles Notes version, basically said that the federal government just put themselves where they don't belong, overreached, getting too involved in provincial jurisdiction matters regarding natural resources in particular. This is not a binding ruling, but the federal liberals would be foolish not to acknowledge what this ruling has said and try to figure it out because, look, it'd be important in provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, and yes, here. So I don't know what that means overall in the big scheme of things to their climate approach and climate policies. But it does beg pretty serious questions now that the Supreme Court in a 5-2 ruling, and yes, there's a couple of vacancies on the Supreme Court, and yes, there's a bunch of vacancies of federal judges across the country, which has been noted and discussed on this program in the past. But this one, you know, the feds are pretty ambitious with their targets, whether it be the implementation uh, of carbon tax and clean fuel regulations and all of these things and the net zero emission and all of the associated climate policy, how this gets digested and what the outcome will be will be curious to watch unfold, but that is not great news for the federal liberals. It's not a death knell for their climate policies, but it does very clearly and simply speak to federal government overreach into provincial jurisdiction. You want to take it on. Let's go. All right, a couple of very quick ones, a little bit more pleasant before we get to the break and to your call. Bravo to Ethan Williams. He's a 19-year-old. He's a second-year Mon student. He put his hat forward, and he was acclaimed to be a town councillor in the town of Bay Bulls. I think that probably makes him the youngest councillor in the province. If I'm wrong, let me know. It's important for elected bodies to reflect the citizenry. And, of course, having younger voices at the table is probably very, very helpful. It very likely will bring more young people up the southern shore, Bay Bulls in particular, to maybe pay attention to what council does and the impact it has on their day-to-day -day lives. Sometimes it's easy enough to blame everything on the premier or everything on the prime minister, but a lot of what we do, a lot of what we touch, a lot of what we need day-to-day Municipal councils. So congratulations, to Ethan, and good luck trying to balance your studies and balance your work as a councillor up in the town of Bay Bulls. And just for the fun of it, it does bring along a possible conversation about, you know what, lowering the voting age? 
I get clobbered every time I bring it up, but hey, so be it. Maybe it's just a bit of a amusement, but I think it's an important conversation. How many people do you know who are 16 who are working and paying taxes? You probably know plenty. And they get no formal say with the pencil in hand and a ballot in hand behind the cardboard protective uh, unit at the polling stations. What do you think? And you say, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. They're too young. There's plenty of people well over the age of 18 and 19 that get a vote, but they don't necessarily know what they're talking about either. All right, then it's co-op week. I've always been surprised that there's not more co-ops because many of the co-ops that are in place seem to be uber successful. Fogo Island Co-op, Labrador Shrimp Company, to name a couple, and yes, the credit unions that are pretty popular in certain corners of the province. So it's Co-op Week. Maybe we'll see if we get Dave Walsh on. He's the managing director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Co-ops. There's probably a little bit of misunderstanding, you know, even in my head, about exactly how a co-op works, the benefits. You know, how it can make some community, some region stronger with that sort of formalized approach to a cooperative. And the two aforementioned, I think, are good examples. Maybe we'll see if Mr. Walsh has time. At some point this week, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Uh, David, my clicker's not working again here this morning. Can you click that Margaret on for me? Good morning, Margaret. You're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. Good morning to you. I can't believe I'm doing this. Why? Why, this is a hard subject to talk about. Uh, we need more protective care beds for our, our dementia people. We've got a little home there that got 12. Surely, God, it shouldn't cost an awful lot to add a few more rooms onto that. They don't need a lot of help, only just their daily activities and, and, and a good dose of, of um, kindness and, and compassion. My God, my little friend now has just moved. She was in her cozy little house with her cat this past five years. She's moved two hours away. Her niece, the only family member, it seemed to me, that visited, visits her almost every day. But she works full time, and, and she can't visit her now every day. So she's thrown two hours away with all these fam- unfamiliar faces. Now, Patty, she could be there for a year or more. Then she, th- there's a bed available. And the only way that would be available if somebody passed away or had to go to a nursing home. Uh, now, she could get moved back there. By that time, she got her, she got her familiar face that visited her. She got her forgot. Then, on top of that, she's put into more unfamiliar faces. Now, if she gets sick and got to go to the hospital... And she got to be sent uh, not back to this little home, but to a nursing home. She could be thrown right back two hours away again. What's wrong with that picture? It's certainly less than ideal. And, you know, the concept of building more uh, beds in a protective unit for dementia care patients, 
fair enough. I mean, we've seen the stories, right, where people are not of not themselves, and consequently, we've seen some acts of violence, and it's devastating. Just imagine if you're the son or daughter or family member of someone in one of these homes and in one of these units, and you get a call to come in because your loved one has taken a severe beating. So, yes, there's got to be not only more beds potentially, but the problem is we just don't necessarily have the staff. So there's even just so-called regular long-term care beds that are vacant at the moment because the bed is there, the room is there, but they don't have the staff to accommodate the next resident. And so consequently, they're lying in a hospital bed. So there's a lot to be said for what happens in long-term care and how we set it up and how we protect people because... Uh, you know, one of my greatest fears in this world is Alzheimer's or dementia. And I'm sure the same could be said for most people listening to the program this morning. So to know that there might not be the spot that's absolutely conducive for them and not necessarily the safest environment that we need it to be, it's a big problem, no doubt about it. Honest to God, I, I you know, it, it, it saddens me, it hurts me, because, you know... She couldn't be just sent around in circles. I mean, no wonder they become aggressive. Sure, if I was put into a place where I didn't know anybody, and 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 then probably a few months after that, sent to another place where you don't see a familiar face, I'd be aggressive too. My God, there got to be something better done than this. Yeah, and I don't think it's a reaction because they're frustrated. It's a reaction because they don't have that type of control of themselves and their mind and their actions any longer. The disease has just completely overtaken them. Do you know something? What's that? 99% of them knows everything you're saying. Sometimes, yeah. Parts of the day. Most times they know what you're saying. But, Patty, they can't get back to you. They're, they're, they get frustrated because they can't get back to you, but they know what you're saying. I know that. Okay. That's all I got to say. We need more protective care here in this area. I appreciate the and, time, Margaret. And, and, and it hurts me to the core to see what's happened. Okay. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Yeah. Bye-bye. And I mean, I'll add to it, you know, remember when there was getting a lot of headlines is that the stories of couples being separated. So it's just another extension of the long-term care conversation. And, you know, it's not that long ago. It's about a year ago that they formalized it by legislation in Nova Scotia where there would not be couples separated. Working towards that outcome here in this province, but just think about it. If it was your own mom and dad, for instance, and they're married 60 years together, 70 years. Next thing you know, they have different medical uh, needs and the possibility to see them split up entering long-term care. I know they've tried to do something about it, but we have to enshrine it in legislation because that, you know, that just is not good enough, right? Let's keep going here. Let's take a call on line number two. Henry, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? I'm okay today. How about you? Uh, I have better days, Patty. What's happening? I'm a seasonal worker. I'm going to give you a little story. I would be in Alberta right now or BC on the Alaska Highway plowing some snow for the winter. But a month ago, I got a call from CYFS to come collect my child from her mother's care. At the time, I had some income through EI that exhausted. Also, at the time, I picked up my daughter, asked CYFS if they could help me with emergency funds. 
Um, Patty, I wasn't involved in my daughter's life for the first couple of months, so I wasn't on her birth certificate as a vendor. So they had to set me up. It takes a month to set up as a vendor. Uh, I asked for emergency funds. I mean, that's, that's not really helping me that it's going to take a month process. This was a month ago. I collected my daughter on the 6th of September, and I've had her for 24-7 since then. And I've received zero help from the government. And now that I have exhausted my EI, I'm trying to get everything set up for AES. And today is the 16th. I was expecting to get something from them, and I haven't received anything from them either. So I'm a single father sitting home with a one-year-old daughter getting zero help from the government who put her in my care. Does this mean, and I don't want to pry too deep into your own family matters, but does this mean that the mom is now permanently out of the picture, or at least out for now? For now. Okay. What type of help was she receiving to be able to be the parent? Uh, When I picked up the child, CYFS mentioned at that point in time, they personally bought a mattress for my child at the time. Now, I thought that was strange. They're willing to dip into their own pockets or find something there that was something, some way, somehow, they could help the mother of the child when she was in need. And she would have been a vendor on the child's account to do that immediately. My issue, my concern, Patty, is when CYFS puts a child in the care of a father, there should be something that is an immediate form of help. Not, you know, even if the father isn't on the child's uh, birth certificate or as a vendor to be sought up through CRA and have everything there, there might be a speedier process to get sought up as a vendor. But to have a child going on now a month and a half placed into my care by CYFS and not receive any help whatsoever other than from my family, I would have had to have passed this child over to someone else because I'm sitting here with nothing. I haven't had money to pay my rent or bills in a month. I had to go out and buy a crib and everything I needed for my child because we were estranged for four months before I got her. Now, so when you talk about need, are you talking about anything beyond financial assistance? Because without question, there are people listening to this program that have stuff for babies and toddlers at home because that's one of those industries where we all spend too much on that. There are so many beautifully, gently used baby-related items that people are happy enough to give and pass along. So I can try to help on that front. I can get you some stuff. When it comes to stuff, I exhausted my savings to get the stuff that I needed. Okay. And right now, my landlords are very acceptable with the situation I'm in for not having to pay rent. I still have a light bill. I have to keep the lights on. I have to keep the heat going. I have to buy groceries. I've exhausted my food bank privileges for this month. So the issue and the paperwork uh, to be set up formally through CRA, and you know, it's, it sounds like such a cold term, the vendor, but that should be able to get done pretty quick, shouldn't it, Henry? Very cold term. Uh, it takes a month process, oh. a month. Uh, my family member in BC is a foster parent, and they do a PDOC in BC, which is basically the government writes you a check. You can go spend at only Walmart which is a hell of a lot better, sorry for the language, than having to sit here with nothing. 
anybody at any of the constituency offices working with you to try to help? As far as I'm concerned, they're all working with me as best they can. Okay. It's just the system is very flawed when it comes to a father sitting at home with a child looking for help. Okay, it's going to take a month for us to help you. I could, I could cover that month. It's gone over a month now. How far beyond a month are we? I received my daughter on the 6th of September. This is now the 16th of October. Who are you working with uh, specifically? Like, maybe I can just see if I can try to help on that front. I'm going to the Eastern Health Building uh, here in my town for help and seeing to updates, to get updates on where I might be at. Uh, they have informed me that this emergency fund is only a one-time thing because I have been there several times to inquire about it, and I understood it's a one-time thing. I've also sent off all the paperwork to CRA for to get my child's family allowance sent to me directly, but that's a monthly process as well, timely process, and it could take a couple of months. And I will get all the back pay, and I'll be able to catch up on my bills. It's just the process, the timely process. For a man that didn't have the help that I have at home through family, he would have had to pass his child over to a foster home and, and go back to work. Like I said, I should be in BC doing my seasonal work, clearing the highway for my family and yours. But because of the situation at hand, I had to be a father first. And that's a very difficult thing to do here in Newfoundland for some reason. What do you mean by that? So the process is different here than it would be elsewhere? Because dealing with CRA, you would imagine they have very different. Pardon? This process is different, yes. As I I had before mentioned, I have a family member in BC who is a foster parent. Uh, When they get a child placed into their care, they immediately get what's called a PDOCET. And that's a check for, I'm not sure what the amount of money is, but it's something that you can only spend at a store. It's not cash. So the CYFS officer kind of told me that it was better this way because you're getting cash you can spend anywhere. Well, that's great when you get it, if you get it when you need it. But if a PDOC is something that the government can hand to a father the same day that CYFS says you have to take your child, then that would be a much bigger help by all means, because they will be handing it to you when they're handing you your child, not making you wait another month or a month and a half. It takes a month for the process for me to be added on as a vendor and then probably another two weeks. And then with life in itself being hectic, it took me a week to get that paperwork filled out and sent out. So I'm waiting. Uh, it's a waiting game. And yes, it was a week that I had to try and get everything straightened out and get that paperwork passed back in few holidays at the time so other than the process because if there was something that we collectively could try to do to help then i would be more than happy to entertain that but of course when it comes to the behemoth of government and the glacial pace with the with which they work yeah i understand yeah it's the behemoth of the process and um just letting other people out there know especially fathers 
who may end up in the same situation. Be prepared, because if you don't have family to help you when they make that call and ask you if you're willing and able to take your child, and you don't have the help and you know it's gonna be a process, then, then when you say you can take your child, you got to know for sure you can take your child. When I got the call and I said I could take my child, I almost needed to take my child and have the uh, setting there for child care, and she's under one years old, so under two, she can't get child care for me to return to work here. I have to wait until she's of age to put her in daycare. Right. I also need to take my child and find someone to uh, care for her out west, and how, I should have left to go out west for work. How old is she? My child with me. How old is the child? She is going to be two in December, okay. and that's when I can find daycare and finally return to work around here, but I'm not going to be returning to work at the wages that I'm used to making as a seasonal worker. If so, I mean, there's people that are constituency assistants working in some federal members' offices. They they listen, and they every now and then reach out to me to see if there's something that they can maybe help expedite and or help navigate whatever other potential pots of assistance might be there. If anyone connects with me, Henry, I'll be more than happy to get back in touch with you but keep me in the loop and let me know how this plays out because here we are you said the 6th of september is the 16th of october a month has long passed so when you have an update for me let me know and we'll see what we can do for you indeed i will patty thanks for listening take good care of yourself you too. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Paradise School. I assume that means the high school that was not announced versus the one that was announced in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. And then Rosalind wants to talk about autism and education. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Aaron. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay this morning. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you so much. Um, I was just calling in today um, uh, on behalf of the Parents for a Paradise High School Committee just to let everybody know that we are um, planning on attending the House of Assembly today in the afternoon for the question period. So um, I was just calling in today just to let everybody know that we're going to be there to show the government that we are committed um, as a group and just to give a visible presence to the government. And uh, I just wanted to call in to let everybody know that we are doing that and if anybody from Paradise, CBS or Mount Pearl wanted to join us, we would love to have them. We are planning to meet at the um, House of Assembly between 1 and 1.15, and um, it should be over again by 2.30. So I was just calling in today to let uh, people know that. What does the group look like? I mean, did this start, for instance, with a Facebook group and it's grown to face-to-face meetings, or how does the group operate? So, yeah, it did start as a Facebook group. Um, Kayla Quinlan had started it, I guess, um, in the late summer. She had started the, the group, and it kind of grew astronomically very fast. Um, the, the group um, is a couple of thousand people strong now. Um, from that, we did end up having a few meetings where we identified people who would like to be on the active committee um, and have, like, weekly meetings and take part in, um, you know, planning processes and stuff like that. So we do we, we meet weekly. Um, sometimes it's face-to-face. Other times it's online just you know based on people's schedules and things like that um so yeah we meet every week and we you know like plan we work on things behind the scenes and one of the things that we're doing now is just trying to get everybody together um at the house of assembly today just to show the government that we are a visible presence and and you know just to show them that we are there and we are committed to um, working with them to get our high school in paradise 
How many children do you have, Erin? How many children do I have personally? Yeah. I have two. You have two. What grades are they in now? Uh, kindergarten and grade four French. Uh, fair enough, because before you know it, and I can tell you no in certain terms, that grade four French student will be going to high school before you know it. So things happen. Oh, I, I know. Yeah, the, he, I feel like he just started kindergarten yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible stuff. So just, you know, paint us a picture about some of the members, that what they're talking about, because, you know, in certain parts of the province, getting bussed out of your community to go to school is just standard operations. But when we know what we know based on priority lists and the district list and uh, where the hierarchy stood, to know that this that your community the fastest growing community in land of canada who was at the top of the list is not getting school what does that mean for some of your group members and their their children's day-to-day activities ability to uh, participate in extracurricular or anything of the like yeah, so that's exactly what I was going to bring up is, you know, a lot of them don't have the ability to take part in extracurricular activities. Those children who are bussed out of Paradise, um, they are in very overcrowded schools. So not just the kids in Paradise who are impacted, you know, like the, the kids in Mount Pearl and CBS, they're also in the same boat. They aren't able to, say, make the sports teams because there's only so many spots on a sports team and there's you know, a thousand kids in the school, um, you know, and it's not just sports, it's it's drama, it's ex- any, any of those extracurricular activities. I was speaking to a parent recently who has both children in elementary school in Paradise, but also in high school in Mount Pearl, and her child is not able to take the courses that he needs to graduate because the classes are full and they don't have the space for the labs and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a lot of that happening and it's very unfortunate and it's obviously frustrating. Um, I've spoken to parents who have never been able to attend an assembly in their child's school because they can't have all the parents there at once. They can't have proper graduation ceremonies and and all that kind of stuff because they can't actually fit everybody in the buildings. Has your group formally or informally joined forces with the parents at PwC? Uh, no, no. Um, I I wouldn't even be able to tell you who any parents are at PWC. <laughs> I, I just threw it out there because you have very interesting overlapping concerns because PWC is going to see a problem uh, in the future when the school is built in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. So you don't necessarily want the exact same thing, but there is a very similar uh, outcome that you both want to see. I was only putting it out there because, as we know, strength in numbers, and then we're talking yeah. about two different voting districts which gives it another little different flair so it's not up for me to tell you or anybody else what to do i would just throw it out there because maybe just maybe you bring in a couple of different mhas of course paul din has been an advocate for your position all along and so i don't know if there's any additional pressure comes with that group being on side because you're not exactly asked for the same thing but in some fact in some form you kind of are yeah, yeah, for sure. And we are encouraging the parents of, of um, individuals in Mount Pearl and CBS to also, you know, join if they want to be part of our committee. Um, this is not exclusive to Paradise because we do realize that they're, um, you know, like the, say, for example, the, you know, if they do put a, a high school in Paradise, that significantly impacts all three communities, you know. So we, uh, you know, like we're encouraging that um, anybody who wants to join us or to bring their opinions or their experiences to us, then we would be more than happy to have them. Good luck with it. I don't know what's going to come of it. You know, even when this was announced that the uh, new next high school will be down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, and government mm-hmm. acknowledges the paradise issue, but just kind of vaguely. You know, I haven't heard yeah. anybody come forward with a legitimate defense of it because, again, it's not me or a parent from paradise like yourself or the uh, formal organizer of this committee. Is the district itself. <laughs> they yeah. use the database on student enrollment to say where we should be building next. That included yeah. uh, school and cartwright to be repurposed, Ken Mount Terrace, which is also curious to me, 
they're going to build a school and again it's a growing community lots of young families there but we don't even know what kind of school accommodating how many students even with what grades so there's yeah. a lot of confusion going on inside of education infrastructure Definitely. And, you know, the, like you said, the numbers in paradise don't lie. Um, you know, we can easily make a strong argument just based on the numbers alone and the data. We, uh, you know, like we already know what numbers of uh, in uh, classes in the schools that we would need. We know the numbers of kids that are getting bussed out. We know all of that. And we can clearly provide that information to the government if they don't already have it. So, you know, the, the numbers don't lie. The argument is easy to make, on, in our opinion. <laughs> well, I think it is, too, because, again, I always feel like I should say this. Nobody begrudges the call for school. That's not what the conversation no. is at all. You know, my mother's family's from the Cove, so I've got, you know, some quasi-skin in the game here. But, you know, dad is important. We compile it for a reason. Student enrollment's important. The numbers of students being bussed in or out of one community versus another is part of the conversation. And Paradise absolutely has a case to make, and I appreciate making time. Give the folks at Deets one more time for your appearance on Confederation Hill this afternoon. So we are going to meet at the House of Assembly at, um, at the Confederation Building for 1 o'clock or 1.15 at the latest, and we will go into the question period and sit there as a cohesive, um, committed group together, uh, visibly. Obviously, no uh, talking or protesting, but we will be there, and we would love to have anybody who would like to join us. Appreciate the time. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome, Aaron. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, Rosalind, you stay right there to talk about the education system and children on the spectrum. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's go to line number three. Rosalind, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How about you? Good. Can you hear me okay? I have you on speaker here at my home. I can hear you pretty good. If you want to pick up the receiver to make it better for those listening, you can do that as well. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Um, so thank you, first of all, for the opportunity. I know that your show is a starting point for people to uh, have a voice and focus on solutions for issues that they're facing. So I'm very pleased to be able to do this. I'm going to have basically a main message today. I'm going to keep it simple. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of discussions that need to be had. But basically the issue right now is my child is on the spectrum. Um, she is in grade 10. She started a new school this year. She's 15. Um, there was no student assistant approved for my child or for that little group of kids um, this year at all. There was an application put through from the previous school, and um, nothing has been put in place. Um, 10 days into school, I spoke with the school because my daughter was showing signs of extreme anxiety. I want to mention for sure that this new school that she's in is incredible. The staff is incredible. They're obviously all on the same mindset of just helping these kids. They're stretching their resources beyond and doing everything they can to help her, which has not been my experience in the previous school. So it's great to have that support. I also want everyone uh, there to know that this is my this is my work. This is not on behalf of the school. Um, this is this is for me. I don't want it to seem like the school is pushing for anything because they have enough things to deal with. So basically, she's had um, student assistance since grade four. She's in grade 10 now. Um, so this year, it just wasn't given. It just wasn't given. So I got, went through the proper channels. I spoke to the people who I was told to speak to in the school board. Didn't get a response. Called again, didn't get a response. Um, so I talked to, I believe, and I did have this written down, um, Executive Director of School Services, I believe is his title, on Friday because I'm done. I'm done being 
just spun around in different meetings and no one is ever available. And this is my child. These are children that deserve an education. They they have a right to an education. And I mentioned to this guy on Friday that it's the same as not putting up a ramp for a child in a wheelchair. It, to me, not to be using extreme words, to me it's disgusting. They can talk about where the problem is, how they fall through the cracks. It just comes down to one thing. All the talk about mental health and programs. These children spend most of their days, most of their time in school. They have to deal with so much anxiety, so much worry. You know, all the different physiological issues uh, such as noise and all the crowd and the other kids. And like I said, this school is amazing. I feel comfortable for the first time in four years that my kid is in my child is in great hands. Um, but the school board or whoever is in charge of this, they're not doing their part. They're not taking it seriously. Like these these children, my child specifically, um, started to pull her hair out, pull her hair out of her head in such big clumps that you can see little bits of blood. And I took a picture and I sent it to them. Now, their tactics right away, which I'm very familiar with, unfortunately, because it is very stressful as a parent to have to take this on, but I will, and I have. You know, um, they kind of... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, these types of stories, you know, if a child in the K-12 system has needed a certain type of student aid to support worker in place in grade four, they still need it in five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Oh, even more. Right. And, yeah. and you know, maybe sometimes things change uh, so that a different type of support worker might need to be in place. The one thing with children on the spectrum, and this is not defending anything, this is just a, a general comment, is, you know, you might have a child that sometimes has some sensory overload and needs a quiet place to go. But you might have another child on the spectrum that needs much more intensive support and might be a runner it might be all sorts of different uh, things where mm-hmm. you you absolutely have to tailor the support worker to the child but our mm-hmm. system knows your child already mm-hmm. knows what she needs so to not have support workers in place that to me just you know is one of those issues where it speaks to what is the distinct shortcomings in the inclusive education model simply mm-hmm. put we're just putting children in the same building in the same classroom and calling it inclusive and until all the supports are there to actually give everyone a level playing field a fighting chance it's not inclusive you know mm-hmm. we're just we're we're kind of misusing a very important word Absolutely. It's not inclusive. I mean, my child, her basic emotion is happy. That's just who she is. She's happy. She doesn't complicate things. She doesn't overthink things. She wants to go to school like everybody else. She's happy when she leaves this house, and she's happy to come home. This year, she gets a lot of support, like I said, from the school and everything. Um, but, But they are supposed to have... all. They're supposed to have a student assistant available. Now, it will be... Um, determined by the school because they know who needs what, who needs how much, who needs more, but that support, that one student assistant right now would create so much more of a safety net, so much more of of um, those children can be comfortable in knowing that if they need something, if they're having trouble speaking up or whatever, you know, that's the bridge between them and the guidance counselor. That's the bridge between them and calling home uh, 20 times a day. Now, this doesn't happen so much at this school, but the last four years before that, or three years before that, um, I lost my job. 
I lost my job. I'm a single mother. Not that that has anything to do with it. Um, the father is in the picture. You know, we co-parent. But um, it, it's it's just... I'm so sorry. I lost my train of thought there for a moment. That's okay. I'll give you a chance to collect your thoughts again here. So... You know, do you have any advocacy groups working with you, whether it be at the Autism Society or anyone specifically in the K-12 system or another parent that's dealing with similar issues? Because sometimes, you know, uh, the the need to kind of relieve some of the weight on your shoulders might be also very helpful because it's all-consuming. When our children are in need of something, they don't get it. It just dominates your thoughts all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because nothing's more important. I mean, um, there's lots of lots of reasons why people need to have a voice and, and these children don't. My daughter is fully verbal. Her last school, not to go backwards because I want to focus on a solution now, but her last school, for instance, I never heard anything until January. Everything was covered up and then all of a sudden in January there's this big problem. They think she shouldn't be in school. They said they don't have the resource to keep my child safe. My child went from happy, happy girl, positive. She banged her head off a concrete wall. This is not my child. I knew something was missing. And they, you know, they focused in, oh, she's not safe. I said, she needs help in the washroom. All their kids are not being nice in the washroom. It upsets her. She dreads going to the washroom, that kind of stuff. Um, But anyway, a child advocate is someone that helped me immensely. I found that information on the autism group Newfoundland, so families with children or or family members with autism. I got a lot of guidance there. They helped me... um, they help me know what route to go and not to get caught up in all the back and forth and them avoiding my calls. And, um, you know, it, it, it's crazy. There's a ton of parents that I spoke with also on that group. Um, and some of them actually removed their child from school. They were advised to. They were told they didn't have that. They didn't know to keep going further. They just kind of had to buckle for their own mental health. And it affects the whole family. You know, it affects our whole family. Um, but just to go back to, to right now, you know, the the other services that are there, there's lots of services, lots of wonderful staff that really, truly care and give their time. Um, but a lot of these children don't know how to ask for help. They just need that to feel that comfort and say, I'm having trouble with this or I'm nervous to go to the washroom. All those little things, you know, as, as an adult um, going through your day at work, some people have trouble voicing their concerns and they have a lot of extra stress at home. It takes up a lot of their energy to get through the day when other people might find those things so simple. It's not simple for children with ADHD, with autism, with neurodivergent brains. And there's so many of us, you know, and uh, I told this guy on Friday because right away he tried to deflect, as usual, deflect to my daughter's mental health. And my daughter's mental health is directly a result of the stress that she put under just to have a regular school day. Um, then I said, you know, that's between me and my doctor and my child. That's not your concern. Your concern is to get this support in. It's required. It was applied for. And I'm not going to let my child and the group that she's in since kindergarten um, not have the support they need. There's no reason. They can shift whatever they need to shift. I don't need to know the details. I told them I'm I'm tired of being, you know, I'm not doing this all year like I did with the last school um, because the school is not the problem this year. But it was both last time. I had to deal with a school who, you know, they they didn't support any part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I go back to, to your question there to support. So there's a community um, through Facebook. There's um, 
people are very willing to tell their thought because it feels like a safe place to speak. Some people will uh, go anonymous, which is fine, and we really support each other. Um, I do have one other parent today. I'm reaching out today. I just wanted to get you know get the conversation started, open up maybe a place where some people can feel more comfortable now going and telling their stories. Just because I don't believe you know if you're not dealing with this type of thing in your own life, you're not really aware of, of what goes on um, with children um, or adults for that part, you know, what they have to go through, what the parents have to go through. A lot of parents have given up their children. My child is academically great. She works hard. She's she's very, like I said, she's straightforward. She wants her project done early. Fair enough. She takes pride in, in everything she does. Like there's no reason why that child can't get through school with a basic support. She does her part. She's doing her part. She is a trooper. Um, we work together. Um, her school this year, finally, this school, this new school is doing their part beyond beyond I could tell right away they care they're stretching everything out they care about these kids they care about their well-being so I feel like now I'm in a better position you know Um, but there are supports out there other parents will be coming forward one of um, my child's classmates since kindergarten uh, is also you know concerned and uh, she's sending an email to the executive director of school. And she's welcome to call this program a little late for the news but Rosalind I appreciate the conversation and the topic and folks are more than welcome to call this program to discuss this and similar matters inside the K-12 system because that's where we sometimes get results is when we actually have conversations because you know for many parents we all got this little three foot world right? I'm concerned Mm -hmm. with my job, my life, my wife, Mm -hmm. my children and maybe don't necessarily understand what's going on in the classroom because if your child needs support and not getting it, inevitably it impacts the entire classroom. So this is not just for kids who need support, this is for every no, child because the classroom just doesn't navigate and operate the way it's supposed to, you know, if we're having an inclusive model. Rosalind, I'm off to the break, but stay in touch and good luck. Will do. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that one child, right? Because obviously that will impact the way the school and the class operates. Anyway, let's take a break. Adam, you're next to talk about a little crown land issue. Don't go away. Not a little one, big one. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the owner of Bloomfield Farm, the Outport Acres. That's Adam Furlong. Good morning, Adam. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Uh, can you hear me any good? I can hear you okay. Yeah, the weather is pretty miserable here today, and I find we usually have a pretty poor cell phone reception here when the weather is not great. So if well, you can't hear me at any point, just stop me and let me know. Will do. Go right ahead. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk more about the crown land issue that's still just largely being ignored by the government. Uh, I'm still being ignored. I mean, I've tried dozens of times to speak to somebody in government and and uh, minister loveless about this issue and i i'm still receiving nothing not even something as simple as a, re- a reply to an email but uh september 25th of uh, this year was the three-year mark of me and my family moving into this house so that marks three years of me trying to have a meaningful conversation with anyone in government regarding these issues and uh usually with the minister responsible, and I've had virtually no luck, luck whatsoever in three years. Um, I'm not really sure what 
the current government are, are trying to accomplish here by just ignoring the issue. I mean, I've said it before. I've got nothing against the Liberals inherently. I mean, I think Dwight Ball did a good job while he was in there, but I'm not, you know, I'm not blind and I don't have a short memory. I know that the majority of the government officials and ministers that are currently there are the same people who were there under Dwight Ball's leadership. So what has changed is my question. I mean, there, there seems to be a great deal of stubbornness that exists in the current government. They just come up with a direction that they want to go on one topic or another, and they just charge forward. They're they're completely uninterested in whether or not that plan is the best option. I mean, you look at just examples like the school for Portugal Cove rather than Paradise, to, despite the data and the facts that shows that Paradise needed it. And then they've got this announcement for a school in Camon Terrace with no no idea how many students or what grades it will serve. I mean, it sounds like obviously not as much of a, a big issue, but it sounds a lot like the approach that uh, was taken when Muskrat Falls was announced. You know, instead of doing uh, a proper a proper investigation on what is actually needed and then figure out how to meet that need, to just decide that we are going to do this now. Other people can figure out how to make it happen, regardless of if it's needed or what is needed. Fair enough. Sometimes, you know, I, I know there's going to be some cumbersome legislation that has to be addressed and, you know, amalgamating the two different divisions which operate crown lands in this province. But there is absolutely a political victory available here. There is. You know, the tricky ones of trying to secure and recruit and retain healthcare professionals, not as easy as it sounds. Teachers, obviously not as easy as it sounds. Housing is a complicated matter. But this Crown Land stuff, the problems have been identified. Solutions have been offered for folks who are working in it, whether it be, you know, your particular situation, the Diamonds from Catalina, Greg French, the lawyer out in Clarenville. People have put enough on the table where even if we just had baby step starts, amalgamate the registry deeds with the Crown Lands Division. Start there. Let's have a quick review, or a part of me, an extensive review of what the difference between 1976 and 77 looks like then compared to today. Because not moving on it, and not even be willing to deal with the private members' resolution tabled by Pleman Forsey, the member for exploits, you know, does that say they don't care? Does that say they don't understand? And does that scream that they're not going to change it? Because again, if people took the time to look at that land use atlas, which is available on the government's website, the amount to crown land occupied by commercial operations and private dwellings is extensive. So these stories are only scratching the surface. The diamonds really kicked it off. That headline really drew a lot of conversation towards this issue. And unless something changes, we're just going to be basically uh, paying lawyers. We're just going to go through the quieting of titles, paying lawyers all the time it takes to just rectify something very simple. You know, you've been on this plot of land, paying property taxes for 40 years. You want to downsize or to uh, move to a different community, and you got to fight this battle. It seems completely unnecessary. You can get a political victory here, and it'll be easier than some of the other ones, the daunting problems that they're dealing with. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of people still think that it's it's some of the stuff that I'm saying and Greg French is saying may seem like a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not. I mean, if you go on that Crown Lands Atlas, you can very quickly find entirely entire communities that are considered to be entirely Crown Lands. So, I mean, the statement that that you've heard from Greg French that there are, you know, an estimated tens of thousands of residents and properties in this province 
with this problem, most of which are not even aware that they have the problem. That is an accurate estimate. And I mean, if we just if we just go a very conservative estimate here and just say that there are 10,000 properties in the province with the same issue. I mean, the people that we bought our property from told me that their final legal fees at the end of the day were $30,000. And due to the fact that we were only able to purchase half the land from them, we, I, I mean, I felt bad for it at the time, but it was half the land. So my hands were kind of tied. We ended up paying them $24,000 less for the property. So, I mean, that's that's almost $55,000 that they're out. So, I mean, if if everyone else of that 10,000 property number ends up with the same total financial impact that they did, that would mean that our provincial government will be responsible for financial damages of $500 million to the people that they're elected to represent. And, I mean, there's absolutely no way that this is justifiable. And the fact that the issue has gone on as as long as it has, with no acknowledgement or action whatsoever from the provincial government. I, I mean, it's it's pathetic, really. They had public consultations at the beginning of this calendar year. Don't know if that landed on deaf ears. Don't know if they're going to come up with a plan. I guess we'll soon find out if it's on their agenda for the fall sitting. But it's a big one. Well, they, they also had public consultations in, I believe it was 2017, and, and literally nothing happened from that. So, I mean, I don't have high hopes that they're actually going to act on any of the information that they gathered in those public conversations. Yeah, hopefully the issue doesn't get lost in the, you know, I suppose the top three, four agenda items, if you hear from the government themselves or if you hear from the Tories, health care, housing, cost of living, child poverty, all extremely important. But this one might not be as complicated as those other four are. And maybe, just maybe, you can make at least show their hand that there's going to be some forward momentum here to try to settle and solve an issue before they cost the people of the province the number you just used, $500 million, to deal with a problem that is in large part unbeknownst to them. It's not their fault. Yeah, and I mean, those four issues that you just listed there are obviously some of the most important issues facing this province. But... This crown land issue is intermingled with all of that. I mean, we, we talk about local food production and food security and all that stuff. My, my situation shows that, you know, local food production and agriculture is negatively impacted by these crown land issues. I listen to Open Line almost every day, and I heard a few weeks ago a woman called in and spoke with uh, Linda Swain when she was covering for you one day about uh, municipalities and the, the whole housing crisis. And she noted that one of the most known difficulties with municipalities being able to do much to address the issue of housing is access to crown land. And she specifically mentioned the uncertainty of clear title and who actually owns what land that may or may not be deemed to be owned by the crown. Fair enough, uh, because you know a lot of these things do kind of work hand in hand or hand in glove, in some form. I uh, appreciate the time as usual, Adam. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, one other thing I'd like to see if you can do. I mean, like I said, I've been trying desperately to have a conversation with the minister about the issue, and he just completely ignores me. Um, if you could try to get him on the show, I know that he's the minister of forestry, fisheries, and agriculture. So I mean, fisheries alone, there's lots and lots of things to discuss. If he did come on the show. But if you could get them on with the main topic of discussion being these crown land issues and just just get them to justify how this is considered to be in the public's best interest. I mean, I just listed out that, you know, 
forty to fifty to sixty thousand dollars for a resident to have to justify their own uh, rightful land ownership. Get him to justify how he believes that that is in the best interest of the people that he represents. And that- Minister Lovelace, please call me. I've been trying to get in contact with you for years. Please call me. I feel that my knowledge and lived experience surrounding this issue should be something that is considered valuable information for somebody who's responsible for the government department that is causing these issues. That should always be the question asked. They they ask themselves regarding every single policy. Does this make things easier, better for the people of the province? And if the answer is no, back to the drawing board you go. Absolutely. Appreciate the time, Adam. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, we are going to take a break here pretty much on time. This morning looks like a good opportunity to uh, potentially get on the show. The topic is entirely up to you. No topic is too big, too small. If you're in and around town, it's 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Just to pick up on where Adam Furlong left off, you know, when you compare his Crown Lands issue and or individuals like Yes the Diamonds from Catalina, then you compare and contrast how Crown Lands will be utilized for commercial operations, notably the wind to hydrogen to ammonia, because the footprint, like initially there was some potential for 1.7 million hectares of land to be applied for. It didn't come anywhere close to that, obviously, at the end of the day. But those will be on Crown Lands. Now, the only uh, so-called, pardon me, the only proposal that's in play at this moment in time is Pattern Energy out of the Port of Argentia, not utilizing Crown Lands in their first phase, but everything else has. So there's going to be lots of people in full, full-throated support for these projects because there is a potential economic upside, no doubt about it. There's also going to be some absolutely legitimate questions that are still on the table. Add to it the unknowns surrounding the interaction with our electrical grid and the demand for power. Just one proposal alone is talking about access 24-7 for a portion of the year to upwards of 150 to 155 megawatts. So unless we have that answer, how can a green light ever even come for any of them? Because that's a pretty big issue that's yet to be fully understood. And we're talking about getting answers in by the end of the month. So anyway, you want to take that on? Because the Crown Land does, it's an interesting contrast. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi there, Patty. How are you today? Doing grand. How about you? Not too bad. Listen, I'm calling in response to the lady that called in about her special needs daughter and not having support. Yes, sure. Her daughter's on the autism spectrum. Yep. Okay, I also have a son on the autism spectrum, and since school started, I have left six messages for three different people at the school board since September, never got a call back until last week when I said, you know, I'm going to have to go to the media about this because he's suffering. Now, what happened last week was so bad and I was so mad that I wrote a letter at night to the superintendent of schools and said my child had a very bad incident today and I'm so upset about it someone needs to respond. Now he finally wrote me back late at night and said someone will be calling you but it took three days from there. So what's the question that you're asking? 
Well, I just want to know why, number one, the school board's not on top of things. Number two, why we're lacking such support and why our children are suffering to the point of cruelty. Okay. Those are my questions. Fair enough. So is there something that's missing that makes it for that type of environment for your child? Like, is it the lack of a student assistant, or is it lack of awareness of what's going on when the teachers are looking, or what exactly is the problem? Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's not only lack of awareness, it's lack of a student assistant that are being put in school that have no prior knowledge, as far as I'm concerned, on children on the spectrum. They're just hired and put somewhere. Also, this year, it seems that my son's school there was no teacher. It was all floater teachers. And if anyone knows the child on spectrum, they like routine, they like schedules. That's how they get along. But to be a free-for-all every day, not knowing who's what and who's going to be there, is an absolutely unstructured way to run a school. Fair enough. Uh, you're not wrong regarding routine, and I would suggest that's most every child in K-12 because, you know, routine becomes habit. Habit becomes probably got better outcomes for educational purposes and otherwise and behavioral issues. So there's a lot of merit to the consistency that may or may not be there for many students. I mean, even at the beginning of the school year, I know that, you know, there's some complications with seniority and teachers getting bumped from one position or another, but it's just far too common that we begin the school year without all the moving parts in place. Permanent full-time teachers in the homeroom and or substitutes and or student assistant so yeah it's something else well you know i he had such a bad incident friday what happened that i asked the principal to i want three handwritten letters because when i asked my son what happened to you why did this happen he was upset and devastated and when he seen me pick him up at school he just broke his heart crying and he's not a little boy anymore and so when I called the school and asked what happened, he told me, my son told me, Mom, I was by myself. Now I said, what do you mean you were by yourself? But as it so happens, three classrooms join all together. You open the doors. So he could have possibly been by himself for a bit. However, the vice principal said, no, that's incorrect. There was three people in the classroom at that time. And I said, well, you know what? That even makes it worse. If there's three people in that classroom and this is going on with my son, that even makes it worse. What are they tuned into? Their cell phones or conversations? Obviously not to what's going on. Can you tell me what happened with the incident on Friday? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly. Um, my son suffers IBS severely. Now, when I dropped him off that morning, a lady came to the door to get him. I didn't know who she was, and I said to her, my son is complaining a little bit today about stomach upset. If there's any problems, please call me right away because he has IBS. Anyway, his nerves have been so bad since going back to school. But anyway, when he when I went to pick him up, never heard all day, 20 after 2, he's got beige khaki pants on, and you could see it when he was running towards me, all down his legs, 
all up his back. He grabbed me and started crying. I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then I could plainly smell what's wrong. Anyway, I got him home, put him in the shower, and I called the school. And they said, we didn't notice because my son's a very, very quiet, shy guy says nothing to nobody so he sat there I said to him how long when did this happen he said recess mom I said recess and it's 2 30 in the afternoon that's like three and a half hours that's that's so uncalled for patty it, it certainly is and for folks who maybe don't know so it's inflammatory bowel disease or inflammatory bowel syndrome yeah you know he was embarrassed Poor he kid. was upset you know, because like I said, he's not a little kid anymore. He he didn't even want to go back to school the next day. And I said, no, well, you take the day off and I'll I'll try to get ahead of this and see what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing because obviously people, if not everybody, knew what happened. And you told uh, whoever met your kid at the door that, you know, has a sore stomach today. And if anything happens, please let me know. And you didn't find out till the day was over. That's just unacceptable. And, and not only that, the log book they sent home, I said to the principal, how crazy is this? The log book they send home every day, I open it up and it says, oh, he had a wonderful day, no problems. And I'm thinking, holy moly, are you even noticing what you're writing? I'm sorry to hear that, and hopefully you get some sort of ongoing communication so that this doesn't happen again, or you can nip these potential issues in the bud. Would you like to say anything else while you're here this morning? The only thing I want people to be aware, Patty, we, that lady that called in and myself, we're one, uh, we're people of lots of people out there that have special needs kids suffering in school because of the lack of support. And enough's enough. It's time you know, something was done about this because they have to carry this with them for the rest of their lives. And I want them to be the best they can be. And so do I. I appreciate the time this morning. I wish you good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's shameful, right? Poor kid. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, Sean's in the queue to talk about tiny homes and what solution they might play in this housing crisis. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. How about you? Good. I don't know if you got the video I sent you. Did you were you able to open the attachment? I, I can open it, but I can't hear anything. But I could see the moving file. Uh, but I do okay. have it. I'll forward it to my own private email and give it a better look later on. Okay. No, I was just calling on it. You know, the government's doing a press release today at eleven thirty or whatever, crunch or whatever. I mean, I started this subdivision uh, five years ago. Um, we built homes in five years. Uh, that's about 95% of seniors in them. You know, when a senior lives on $1,600, $1,700 a month uh, as a couple, or, I mean, if they're single, they're, it's a little bit less, I believe. I mean, the lowest rent that I have in one of my units is $375. So, like, it's affordable living. I mean, I've built these on my own dime, um, and it was under the previous council, not the council of mayors that we have now. It was under leadership of Tom O'Brien and his council that got 
all this pass through. Um, you know, I would do more if there was, I've applied for every grant or whatever, I would be doing some stuff like that, but I was unsuccessful. I had a call last week and did a Zoom meeting to invite the, for the Parliament in uh, Pickering, Ontario. And I did one last year in a Zoom uh, with the city of New or province of New Brunswick. So, I mean, it is uh, an opening thing uh, for accessing brunch. Yeah, this would require municipalities to deal with it on a zoning front. You know, there's there's uh, an allowance for tiny homes in the city of St. John's, but a very small footprint associated with the tiny home possibility. You know, there's been some communities very close by that were hesitant to get in the tiny home business. Some of the pushback that you hear is people saying, well, I don't want tiny homes in and around where my 1,200 square foot bungalow is because I don't want to have a negative impact on my property value. I hear that type of argument. What kind of pushback do you hear? Well, when I, when I went to start this, you know, I mean, I was two years uh, with the former mayor, Tom O'Brien, and his council, back and forth, back and forth, and I did plans, and I took pictures of subdivisions that were down in the States and stuff like that, you know, and we picked a part of town. It's uh, next to uh, Newfoundland Alberta Housing Building, like a 12-plex, whatever, and we, we did it there. And, I mean, it, it worked out fine, you know. Uh, my they're not movable homes, you know. The Facebook page for people to go see it. It's a Facebook page that uh, was started by Jess Puddister in St. John's when she was lobbying the St. John's uh, City Council to get it uh, passed through. And she's turned it over to me since. It's called Tiny Houses and Alternative Dwellings. So it is a Facebook page and it shows house articles. Uh, if you go into the portion of that, it'll show you like the smallest house that we built is a home. And the largest is 740 square feet. So, I mean, it depends on where you put into housing. But, I mean, when you got struggling seniors, like uh, out in St. George's, I know of uh, three couples, uh, three seniors, moved in uh, to, they closed down two houses and moved into one house for the winter because they can't afford to keep their house running. I mean, that's how desperate the times are coming. Like I've said many times, you know, there's going to be every single facet of housing from modular homes to tiny homes and double wide trailers and market housing, non-market housing, apartment buildings, condo, every single thing is going to be part of this. If we're going to focus in on what has largely been the focus of Canadians for decades, it's single family dwellings on 50 by 100 plots. We're going to miss the boat. We're just not going to settle this in time. So, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. The, the, ones that, the ones that I've done, they're on like Five by hundred foot lots. Yep. I mean, there's some that that are a lot smaller. I mean, like I have one house that's twelve by sixteen, and people say, "And no, no, it's not for everybody." Sure. Not struggling seniors living on fifteen hundred dollars a month, and they pay three hundred and seventy-five rent and a hundred dollars for their light bill. I mean, they could have a car. They could, you know, they can live a normal life. Who needs? all of this room. I mean, we all have big homes, 2,000 square feet, and do you use your basement? Do you use this? No. You know, it's, it's, it is everybody. Yeah, the connection's not working, Sean. Let's just uh, shuffle your feet one way or the other, see if we can clear this up. The what? The, the connection is a bit wonky. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, so move six feet one way or the other. We'll see if we can clean it up a bit. Okay. Yeah, I'm in my truck. See, I'm 
Yeah, yeah it's, it's not great. Uh, but let's no. keep going. Let's try it. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, anyway, like I, I'm just, it's just affordable living for, for seniors, you know, and, and it's something that municipalities should look at. I mean, why are all these other uh, municipalities reaching out to me, you know? A hundred percent, you know, and it doesn't necessarily only have to be a senior. There's a couple of my pals who are single. They choose to be single, and they probably don't need all the square footage they have where they live. And again, if you don't want a tiny home, don't buy a tiny home. But if you think it would suit your lifestyle just fine, whether it be for purchase price to get into the home, uh, the cost to maintain the home, there's probably a big upside. And I think you're a hundred percent right. You know, again... I live in a pretty modest uh, middle-class bungalow. We've lived there for over 20 years. And there's obviously lots of people in all our social circles that have homes where they haven't set foot in 85% of them in the last 12 months. So, yeah, I don't begrudge them. You do whatever you want with your own money. But there's a lot of homes out there you know are completely underutilized with the square footage that they have. I went from 4,800 square feet down to 2,300. And I was trying to talk my wife into going to a 740-square-foot tiny home, but I didn't win that argument. But, I mean, maybe down the road I will. Um, you know, Patty, on another note, I just called in about that. I know I spoke to you a few weeks ago about issues and everything with the town of Stephen Mall and stuff like that. And uh, I believe I sent you, Mr. The Mayor Rose called in and said that I was uh, a liar on 99.3% of my stuff. But I did send you documentation showing that the Mayor Rose did not have the permits for his homes. I believe you received that, didn't you? I did. Didn't I reply? Yeah. Uh, you did reply to me by email, but I just want the public to know and the taxpayers that Mr. Rose does not have his permits. Um, I will be calling you again later this week, Caddy. I, well, before I do call in and t- talk about anything on open line, I always send it to my lawyer first so that I don't get myself in trouble. Um, like Mr. Rose did when he said that I was unelectable. I have charged him with that through uh, the courts and put in codes of conduct on it. Because uh, when I did run in 2000, there was 19 people who ran for an election, and um, only seven got in. And I was number eight. I was uh, number eight not to get in, but I lost the election by eight votes. And I was proud to, to do that. I wouldn't... Uh, run under his leadership because I'm not that type of person. I would rather go in with a, a motive uh, to be for the people. And like I said, when I call you back later, we once my letters get cleared by my lawyer that I can say what I'm saying online, I'll give you a call back and we're going to state some more facts that are not yet out into the public. I appreciate the time, Sean. You're yep, always welcome. Have a good day. You too. Take yeah, care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and of course, when people make those types of proposals, like, say, the modular homes and or uh, 2,500 square foot on the main home or a tiny home, it's not trying to encourage anyone to downsize into a tiny home. If it works for you, it works for you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So I, I would imagine, and I don't think anyone's too far off base if they say, we're going to have to consider everything. If we're going to try to accommodate these numbers that we've heard, which are really quite daunting, 60,000 units over the course of the next six years. And as a reminder, a banner year or a bumper year in housing starts is much more like 2,500. So what role a tiny home makes or plays? I guess that's up to the individuals. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Pat Collins. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you today, sir? Very well. How about you? Oh, good. Uh, Pat, just calling this morning to let your audience know that uh, we have our Heritage, Harper Grace Heritage Hunts hike on again on October 26th, that's Thursday at 7.30. Uh, it's, it's our major fundraiser, the Exception Bay Museum. Um, anyway, so we just leave the uh, 
St. Paul's Church there in Harbour Grace. It of itself has many stories, but we leave that and we we visited by many of the ghosts and people that existed there in the past who uh, had some historic significance. Um, for example, this year we may be visited by a pilot who left here in 1929 to fly across the Atlantic. He, he told everybody else you're going to fly back uh, continentally to to, the, to uh, the mainland, the United States, but instead he tried to take off and go across England. He was never seen again, but guess what? He might show up. Urban F. Dightman, 1929. So um, people like that, Catherine Snow was going to make an appearance. Of course, Catherine was wrongly convicted. We have Rosamond Shepherd from Sp- Spanish Bay who died tragically in 1898. She went to have a race to get a dress made and didn't show up but while there saw a fortune teller the fortune teller herself may be around you don't know it could be all kinds of people do we know what happened to that lady well no we don't because she disappeared and she left the new harbor road in spanish bay in 1929 it was in in november the 11th um her family knew where she was going she took five dollars to buy to buy material for a wedding dress and uh, one of the things she said before she left, she was going to see a fortune teller. But when she got to Harbor Grace, people saw her there with the fortune teller and saw her around Harbor Grace. But then she was never seen again for six months. And six months in April the 28th, 1999, a man from Riverhead found her on a road between Spanish Bay and uh, Riverhead, Harbor Grace. And... Uh, she she was found, of course, the putrefaction was such that she they couldn't tell if she had actually been murdered or anything, but her clothes were were, were uh, dislodged, and uh, it looked very much her skirt was down around her and things like that. So it gave the impression that maybe she had been assaulted, you know. But it was never could never be proven, and it was an unsolved, was an unsolved mysterious death. She was only 21 years old, eh? So, and a, a you know, was this search went on for all these months, and was really strange that she spent a full winter there like that, uh, not that far from the road, apparently, according to the police reports. So we deal with that a little bit, you know. Uh, now we are somewhat graphic, but not as bad as I'm making the sound. <laughs> I was going to say, is this an all ages show or no? It, it is. Okay. We advise people, you know, that. Uh, you know, if you take a child, you're supervised, right? Uh, you, you must be supervised. But uh, we have no issues in the past. Uh, we cover the same kinds of stories, you know. But, you know, it, it's a scary event. i got to be honest with you. It's made to be. But it's also historic. It's, um, we have Carfanini, Bishop Carfanini, who is alleged to have put a curse on Harvard Grace. We get into why. And, uh, of course, we have Peter Downing, who was, uh, was gibbeted and buried somewhere in the courthouse and the old courthouse now which is a restaurant in Harbor Grace and so we do it's about an hour and 10 minutes hour and 15 minutes of Art Rogers our undertaker leading us around town he himself has just come back from the dead very disturbed so he's upset with people and uh, so he'll he'll lead people around and these ghosts appear from the very sites mostly where they were said to have been you know so uh, we have every year we have a good crowd, Patty, and uh, it seems to be a lot of fun and excitement. And so everybody's welcome to attend. Uh, these are well attended events. Uh, Security is high and things like that. If people want to take a flashlight with them, they can because 
some of the lanes are dark and things like that, but we have quite a number of people. Roads are blocked at night. That you know, no, no cars can get by, so there's no danger like that. But people should be careful where they walk, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. And, of course, that new restaurant and the renovation of the old courthouse, thanks to Brenda O'Reilly and Craig Flynn. So uh, yeah. we've done a lot of good work on those types of fronts here in the province. Uh, Pat, give us the dates and do I have to pay? Give me all the details people need to know. Okay, October 26th, Thursday at 7.30, that we all assemble inside St. Paul's Church. It's $10 per adult, $5 per children if accompanied by an adult. And um, just, you know, bring a flashlight if you want. Not necessary. We have people there with them. So come along dressed appropriately. If, uh, if the event is canceled that night, we're making an announcement that I'm assuming will be the next very next night. Yeah, so um, we'd love to have whoever wants to attend. And don't worry, it's not too scary, but... You can always look away, Patty. <laughs> you can always look away. Absolutely right. Uh, sounds like a fun time, a bit of a spooky time. Uh, Pat, appreciate this. Good luck with it. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Pat's an interesting man. I've had him on the show several times. Talk about these types of things, the books that he's author and the like. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be say uh, good morning to Dave Walsh. He's the managing director of the NL Federation of Cooperatives. It's Co-op Week, don't you know? Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the managing director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Cooperatives. That's Dave Walsh. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. Hello, and happy co-op week to you, Patty, and all your listeners. How are you today? I'm doing grand. I echo the same happy co-op week to you, Dave. Uh, For some reason, I'm always quite interested in the concept of co-ops, and I'm always at a bit of a loss as to why they're not more common and popular than they are here in this province, given the successes of credit unions, given the the success of the Fogo Island Co-op and the Labrador Shrimp Company. Before we get too deep into benefits, how does one even get a co-op off the ground? What, What does it take? Well, call us, really, and we'll we'll help you through it. You know, we certainly will. Uh, But before I get into that, I want to also say a happy co-op week to our, you know, 36 member co-ops and credit unions across the province. Um, Over 100,000 members of those co-ops and credit unions. Uh, Patty, did you know that our federation has actually been around for 75 years in Newfoundland and Labrador supporting the co-op sector? Um, you know, you're, you're right. This co-op week, we are asserting that co-ops mean business in this province. You know, while we are driven by benefits like, you know, the quality of life for members um, and, and their communities, economic goals of profitability, providing jobs, all that stuff are equally important. So co-op businesses are ensuring uh, a future for our province. And, you know, why they aren't more widely known, it's it's just education. And that's really what we're here to do is to, um, you know, provide that education to the province and continue to teach uh, and work together uh, to create more co-ops here in our province. So let's put some meat on the bone. You know, for people who are members of a co-op, they'll have certainly at least a base understanding of how it works and you use the word equal I think some people think that every single member of a co-op is created 100% equal I don't pretend to know a whole whole lot about it even though I'm interested in it so before we get to you know the list of benefits you know this sounds like a bit of a, a silly fundamental question but what exactly is it and how level is the playing field for co-op members it's it's a hundred percent level it's a co-op simply put is a democratically run enterprise meant to fill a social economic 
or cultural need. Um, you know, cooperatives are keeping profits in our province. Um, they are providing needed services um, and they're providing needed employment as well. So, you know, when you talk about it being a democratic setup, what does dispute resolution look like? Or is it simply a 50 plus one majority rule kind of thing? Well, everybody has a vote in a co-op. Everybody can attend the AGM every year. Um, all of the members, they can run to be on the board of directors and have an actual say in how that cooperative enterprise is run, um, what direction it takes, um, and the best way to fulfill the needs um, of those members. And, you know, if anybody out there listening today wants to learn more about what a cooperative is, we've got events going on all week for co-op week we've even got a session called hey what is a co-op um, that you can learn about we've got uh, the bell island co-op the rolling pin bakery over there is giving out free cookies so the residents drop in buy some great baked goods um you know all the residents as well in the uh, avalon area um take a visit over um as well the uh, we've got a free yoga class going on with the yoga kula co-op We've got FOGO, the FOGO process, uh, film screening going on. We've got a cooperative housing forum with our friends over at Channel, the Cooperative Housing Association, um, and more. You can check it all out on our website at nlfc.coop. And um, just check out all the events we've got going on for Co-op Week. I want to mention really quick our, our sponsors, so the Community Business Development Corp. Operations, uh, uh, cooperators, the Bayvert Consumers Co-op, Atlantic Edge Credit Union, and the Community Sector Council. Thank you. Are there any industries better suited to the cooperative model? Because the two that I mentioned are, you know, not just fishery, but basically the fishery. You know, and I think for so many of these regional disparities and some of the disconnect and people that haves and have-nots, even with the licenses and quotas and the like. So are there some industries that are really better suited than others or how do you go about having that conversation well you know co-ops are are everywhere um they're in everything and you know there's a saying that if you've seen one co-op well you've seen one co-op because they are all essentially different um we've got like you said there's fishery co-ops here um there's grocery store co-ops uh there's daycare co-ops there's housing co-ops stop right there let's talk daycare co-op how does that work uh, well, again, same thing. So uh, a community needs a service, and that is daycare. Uh, the community gets together. They start a cooperative daycare enterprise. Um, it's run and managed by the members, and those members are, you know, probably the, the people that are using it, uh, the, the people in the community. We have a wonderful daycare co-op out in Port of, ba- Port of Basque, uh, the Growing Our Futures Child Care Cooperative, that has been doing wonderfully for the past five, six years. Um, and, you know, we'd like to see that, um, replicated in other rural areas of the province where we need childcare. Do, do you require, let's say, for instance, you know, for some places, does there need to be the champion, there's someone to pick up the torch and run with it? Do you need strength in numbers to start entertaining it? Because, you know, people have busy lives, and unless you've got a real consensus, whether it be for daycare or the fishery or whatever the case may be, the rolling pin bakery, What do I need? You know, and I know this, uh, once again, a very basic question, but if I'm just one person on the Bjorn Peninsula, can I start a co-op? Do I need to bring X numbers of people to the table, willing dance partners from the onset, or what does really need to take place? 
all you really need is three people to incorporate a cooperative. Okay. There's three names. There's three names that would go on your incorporation documents. Um, you know, and it's it's there's there's a bit of work to put together your bylaws and all that sort of stuff. But again, that's why. Um, we, the NLFC, the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Cooperatives, are here. Um, co-ops are more than happy to share their bylaws and everything, uh, their their information to, you know, you don't have to start from, you know, the ground floor sort of thing. Um, there are other roadmaps across the province of, of other you know, um, daycares and, and things of that nature to to start a co-op and everything, right? And in fact, on our webpage, if you go there as well, we've got two how-to documents on how to start a cooperative daycare um, right from beginning to end. And, uh, uh, you know, again, we'll um, work work with you through the, that uh, process. How do you determine how benefits or profits or what have you get shared? And how do you decide how things get reinvested or expansion of services, those types of things? Because not everyone would have the same background technically or economically to be really part of that conversation. So how do you divvy up benefits? Well, again, that would have to do with, you know, how you set it out in your bylaws in the very beginning. Um, one one way you could look at it is, um, you know, a, uh, a consumer co-op, a grocery co-op. We have many co-ops, uh, grocery co-ops across the province, um, you know, and for the amount that you use the co-op throughout the year, uh, at the end of the year, you would receive a check back in the form of a patronage check uh, based on, you know, the amount or percentage that you used that actual co-op throughout the year. Um, you know, there's there's also a farming equipment co-ops or, or you know, um, where you, you share all of the, or equipment for farming equipment co-ops where you, you know, you use all the uh, uh, farming equipment, buying gas, things of that nature. And at the end of the year, again, those, uh, those profits are shared back with all of the members as well as going back into providing the best possible service that they can to their members. Last word, last thought to you, Dave, before we're off to the news. Well, thanks so much. Again, you know, we're we're really proud about Co-op Week here and everything that's uh, that's going on. We've also got a cooperative incubator pilot project that we're doing here on the Northeast Avalon. Um, so, if anybody has a great cooperative idea or anything there, you can go on our webpage again and check out some info there. We're also working on a cooperative conversion project with the Community Sector Council to transition rural businesses to co-ops, saving rural businesses and jobs. Um, so we're really excited about creating some uh, new co-ops here in the province. Uh, and again, 75 years we're going to be celebrating next year. So we're very excited about that, too. Um, and, of course, happy uh, co-op week to everybody out there. Please go to our webpage, nlfc.coop. Uh, find ways that you can get involved. Thanks for this, Dave. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Patty. You have a wonderful day. Very same, too, buddy. Take care. There's uh, Dave Walsh, Managing Director, NL Federation of Cooperatives. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Dean Whaling's in the queue to talk about the Statute, uh, Statute of Limitations Act. And October's also Employees Disability Month. That and more right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Dean. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I'm a little nervous, so bear with me. This is a first-time caller. Take your time. 
Okay, uh, we just want to let uh, your listeners know that we will be at the Confederation Building today from 12 to 4 to uh, for people... Uh, I'm sorry. We're asking people to come in and sign our statute of limitations on child abuse. Uh, Dean, are you related to Jack? Yes, he's my brother. He's your brother. Okay. Yes. Let me just set the stage so people know what we're talking about here. Jack Whalen spent 730 days in solitary confinement when he was out at the Whitburn Boys' home. And, you know, the story is just amazing because when we're talking about the statute of limitations, for starters, 730 days, his education didn't continue. It's just brutal no matter how you cut it. There's a difference between the statute of limitations as it pertains to physical abuse, or mental or emotional abuse, versus sexual abuse. So for Jack, he had until his 21st birthday to either come forward or on his 29th birthday if the, the the abuse had to be what they call discovered later in life. But if you were a victim of sexual abuse, like the uh, children at uh, Mount Cashel, no statute of limitations. So that's the issue that we're talking about. That's right, Patty, yes. I mean, if this, if this uh, abuse against our children, if nobody is punished, then it doesn't stop. 100%. So we're, we're praying that people will come and sign our petition. We've had, we've had a lot of people sign, but we're just trying to get the, uh, the information out there. We'll be at the Confederation building today and all week, really, I think. So... If people find it in their hearts to come out and sign the petition, that would be great, because this is not just for my brother. This is for all kids, past, present, and future. And I think it all changed based on the Hughes inquiry, right, that looked into Mount Cashel. That's where the statute was formally changed to uh, remove the statute of limitations on sexual abuse victims. So there's a lot to this story, and as you rightfully point out, it's bigger than Jack. So uh, Jack Whalen, of course, we're talking about. Dean, how has... Jack's story impacted your life since? Oh, my God, Patty. When I, I'm a, we, we didn't know a whole lot about it all through the years because he didn't let it out, but we're all suffering so much because of it. Like, just finding out what's happened to him over the, those years is just so heartbreaking. And, I mean, he was a very well-loved child. He, we all were. We, Mom had eight kids. We had no father, but we were all loved and well-looked after. And they just took him just because they wanted to. And it's just like it's destroying our family because it, he's getting like he's not going to get any um, closer. What has Jack's life been? Well, tell us what Jack's life has been like as an adult. Well, as an adult, I mean, he he's made a family for his kids and and his wife and everything. You know, they have a pretty good life. But he's always been like um, he's never been able to be. Um, like real close to us he always had to be the tough guy he had to develop this tough persona when he went into that place and he could never let it go you know he could never like even when we were hanging out and having fun he's always the quiet one and and, and now it's taking a toll on his on his physical health you know it's just it just has to stop <laughs> It's a fascinating and heart-wrenching story when you hear about his daughter, Brittany. So Jack went into that solitary confinement for 730 days with grade 6, came out with grade 6. And Brittany would wonder, you know, when she was a teenager, I can't remember what age the story said, but, you know, Brittany would go to Mom, how come Dad can't help me with my homework or won't help me with my homework? Then she finds out exactly some of the backstory. Curiously, Brittany went on to get a law degree. She's part of trying to represent her father, I believe, alongside uh, uh, Miss Moore. Uh, Lynn Moore to try to change this so you know it's, it's just uh, unbelievable and the impact is far reaching not just on Jack but of course on Brittany oh and on goodness. his wife and on you and on everyone yes, else yes. 
they're they're all having a hard time. But I mean, like, there's so many more people, and I mean, this just nobody's listening. And if, if you don't stop abusing our kids, my God, like, what are we going to have in the future? What's the status of the legal challenge uh, before the Supreme Court? The status of the legal challenge before the Supreme Court now. I, I have to talk to Brittany about that one because okay. I'm not exactly sure. I don't know any of the ins and outs of the courthouse and stuff like that. Sure, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just wanted to... meeting you... with the House of Assembly today, actually. What's the status on the... And the court procedures, you, you ask? Yeah, she's representing her dad. And uh, there's another case that she's also working on, if I remember correctly, about exactly this, is trying to uh, bring it to the Supreme Court about the Limitations Act. That's that's the challenge that's in front of her and, Lee's, and Lynn Moore at this moment in time. So I was just wondering if you happen to know where we are in that process. Uh, well, not, nothing really yet. We dropped off some petitions in there now today, uh, the other day, and we had... Or we can bring more, so obviously we're trying to get more. Um, he's he's uh, he has he's allowed to sit in the House of Assembly today, while uh, I think it's Jim Dean is going to uh, talk for him or explain his situation why he's there and that right. But other than that, Patty, I really don't know. About That's okay, Dean. It's, it's not a problem. That dude has to be. It has to be done away with. And I'm, I suppose his truck with the replica, the cell that he spent all that time in, will be present again on Confederation Hill? Well, unfortunately, no, because Jack is getting really sick now because I don't know if you know or heard it, but he has cancer and he couldn't drive his truck back. Okay. Well, he had to fly back down so he couldn't take his truck, but I mean, we'll be there with the signs and all that. Dean, I wish you good luck with it and to Brittany and Lynn Moore and folks who are trying to challenge this act because if it took a formal judicial inquiry like the Hughes inquiry to see the exemption for victims of sexual abuse, there's yeah. no justifiable reason why people who have been abused at the hands of whether it be the brothers at Mount Cashel or the officials and guards at Whitburn or wherever they are being abused by some fast... Patty, the nuns in the schools had their go at us too. Oh, sure. No, I, I went to uh, yeah. school with Christian Brothers, so I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, Dean, good luck with it. Thank you, Patty. Thank you so much. Take, take good care. You too, buddy. All Thank right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Look, no one's trying to equate sexual abuse with other forms of abuse, mental, emotional, physical. But, of course, it does come with some distinct, and I would imagine, lifelong trauma for most victims. So to just tell me that, you know, we'll exempt one form of abuse and turn a blind eye. And it's not necessarily a blind eye. You do have a time frame to come forward. In Jack's case, it was uh, by his 21st birthday. And or if the abuse through counseling and therapy was only discovered later in life, up until his 29th birthday, that sort of implies that any associated trauma goes away when you're 30. I mean, and obviously that's not the case. So, and you heard it in Dean's voice. The impact is not just on Jack. The impact was real when it came to his own family, his wife and his daughter, Brittany, who has now a lawyer. Congratulations to her. And so this is even bigger, and I'm glad that Dean said, this is not just about fighting Jack's fight, because how many other stories are we all unfortunately and painfully familiar with? The fact that children in the hands of care, whether it be in the orphanage, whether it be a whipper, whether it be in provincial care, period, the abuse stories are very real. I remember it's not that long ago we found out about the first wave of stories was about 29 children who died in care. And we don't know exactly the, 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 the cause of death for, uh, throughout all of these uh, stories and cases, but we do know that the abuse is very real 
and some of it's in the domestic setting, and some of it's in these formalized settings. Uh, Angie, appreciate your patience. When we come back, we're going to talk about Employees Disabilities Month. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Angie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, Hi. Is there still feedback on the line? No. You sound good to me. Oh, okay, good. Because um, when I called in, I would have you on speakerphone so that I can read the captions um, because I have an auditory disability. So no, we're... I can't do that when the phone is held to my head. And... Nice, clear connection. Anyway. Go right ahead. Cool. All right. Um, so I, I just mentioned I have an auditory problem. Um, if I don't, if I talk over you when you're trying to ask me something, it's because I can't see you and I can't see captions. So no problem. Bear with me, okay? Yep. All right. Um, I'm. Uh, don't worry about the patience. I'm actually glad that there was a minute there because hearing that last story um, and the lack of trauma-informed behavior or uh, knowledge around policies and people to interact with and whatnot, it's, it's really overwhelming. It's hard to hear. It's hard to discuss. Um, so I'm glad for the minutes. Good. Um, yeah. Uh, so I called it to talk about uh, the Employee Disabilities Month, which for a person who's disabled on income support um, and also requires caregiving services by a care agency, um, it really feels like a smack in the mouth <laughs> because the the government comes out and says that, yes, we recognize and, and, and want to support people who are disabled um, in every fashion and making sure that, you know, everybody gets to be equitably employed and but doesn't actually have the policy framework to back that up. And what I mean by that is if you're on income support and you're a person who is in repeat or sorry, in receipt of services via the community support and uh, community health and support uh, plan. So you get a caregiver to help you out with stuff at home, personal, uh, personal care and whatnot. Um, those two departments don't work well together at all. If I'm so income support, I mean, they, they want you to get out and be employed, not be on income services anymore. Right. Like that's the standard. But if you're a person who also has a caregiver, that um, that program is not built to help you even get out to go to rehab or anything like they, they barely help you even go get groceries. So getting help to get out to go to work is an impossible expectation like there and there's no framework to even talk to any about it because nobody wants to talk about it that program that provides a caregiver um for those who need it at home you like you you basically get covered to make sure that you can wipe your butt and you can put a fork in your face if you can't do those things that's when they send in a caregiver they don't look after you in any other capacity you are left to suffer so I don't understand how the expectation is that people who need those services are to be are are presented to be as being supported as to go out and go to work. I mean, like you and I are discussing, I'm a relatively bright person, and yet, you know, the supports that I would need to actually go to work either in the home because you know remote work possibilities and whatnot but also even to go out into the community to go to work that framework doesn't exist at all and you can't talk to anyone about it so i mean i i don't know why it is that they feel even justified in being able to support this because if you can't back it up then 
you know, it, you're you're just inciting more hate from people that you already underserve. Sure. From, well, proclamations <laughs> are a piece of paper. So yeah, help me understand exactly where the gaps are. Like, what is missing? So the disconnect inside the policies to try to help keep people get back to work. I remember I spoke with someone from the Canadian Council on Rehabilitation at Work. It was a number of years yeah. ago now. They seem like a very comprehensive group with all the recommendations they bring forward and uh, federally they centralized accommodations <laughs> and stuff. So, like, what's actually missing? Give me, paint me a very clear okay. picture what you need that is not in place. Okay. So, um, I volunteer as a client patient family advisor for Eastern Health or, well, Newfoundland uh, NL Health Services. Yep. And so, um, I'm legally blind. And I, uh, so I need help getting around, right? Like I can't go to the grocery store and read what a bag of flour is. I know what it is by feeling it and, and whatnot kind of thing, but I couldn't identify it by reading it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that extends over everything. Like, I mean, I just, I, I, I know where the, I know where the coolers are because I know the, the, the outlet of Dominion, <laughs> but being able to identify diabetic friendly products, I can't do without significant help. So getting around in the workplace is a big deal, right? Um, because there there are standards when you go into any workplace. You should be able to do your job, whatever job it is that you're hired for. So when you're um, when you have an auditory uh, difficulty, when you're you know when you have a vision impairment, when you have a mobility uh, impairment, you know somebody might tell me where there's a door that I have to go through to access X Y Z office. But if I didn't hear the instructions correctly, if I can't read the instructions correctly, if I can't access it because there's a stairway there somewhere that I didn't know was there, you know, it all comes down to having that support person with me. Right. So So every time you go, there's there's that part. Um, When I get up in the morning, I need help getting ready to go anywhere. You know, if it's walk down to the mail, if it's the grocery store or to the workplace, whatever it is. Um, if I'm to log into a virtual meeting, I need help figuring out my computer outline. Like when a, when a video thing doesn't work, you know, like when you log in on a Zoom call or something like that, the tech isn't always set up appropriately, like to be able to find things, f- platforms change presentation all the time. So it's important to have somebody there with me. The barrier comes in that community support services does not recognize that this is an important part of a person's daily life and therefore doesn't support it. So how do you how do you execute those activities today? Like is every single time that you go to Dominion you need a support person or Yes. Okay. And so how often is it that you're unable to have said support person in place? Daily. Daily. So what do you do? Yep. Um, the majority of the time right now, because we're left in the position where um, our care worker that we currently have, he left and went back to Nigeria, um, and there was no replacement person there for them because um, our whole household is also autistic. And so there's a very specific training that comes into play with that. Like when I get upset about something, it may to people who are not autistic, it may seem to be like a simple little fix. For me, it's the entire world blows up. You know, it's it, and my husband is the same way. So there are very, you can't just send in any old worker. Like that worker has to have very specific training sets. 
and those workers are are few and far in between. It takes a lot to set up a worker to be able to come and work in our house. Um, it's not somebody you can call in and say, oh, well, I have so-and-so who can show up 10 o'clock the, night, the, the morning before a shift even starts. Like, there has to be a lot of legwork leading up to any change in anything. So, you know, being able to access a worker is a lot harder than it sounds. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot. But there's no reason, just because I'm disabled and have multiple barriers in the social context, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be able to access things like everybody else should. You know, it's called equitable access for a reason. Obviously. So who was this worker employed by and trained by? I... I can tell you that the autistic training came specifically from ASNL, so that's the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador, mm-hmm. and that the person who did the training from uh, the society uh, from the uh, from ASNL um, only has that training because they had several other jobs that led to them being able to have that. There's no specific training program per se, because we have no national strategy for dealing with um, um, the autism problem, as people call it. I I hate the way that that gets framed, but that's how people know it. Um, So it's, it, 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 it didn't come from any one particular training line. It came from a bunch of things. So they just happen to have the right knowledge set. And even they recognize that they don't, that they still have a lot of learning to do. So, I mean, it was, it was, everything was very uh, cobblestone, I think is the word. So it's just piecework. You know, you just randomly collect pieces of information and hope it all works together in the end, kind of like Jello. And so um, once that person was trained, who did yeah. they work for? Did they work for NL Health Services I, or a private no, agency? No, they, they work, yeah, for a private agency. I don't want to give out the name because I don't want to <laughs> – the care agencies are already under a lot of pressure to try and meet basic needs, and they're getting nowhere near it. So I don't really want to no. pinpoint pressure on any one particular, you know? Okay. Yeah, but it was it, it was hard to get the coordinators – in because we've worked with a few different agencies it was hard to get the coordinators to recognize the difficulties that we encounter because we don't fit the part you know we don't look like you'd expect when you see the list of of medical ailments and our uh neurodivergencies and things like that when you see it all on paper and then you're presenting you're presented with the two people that are off in front of them there's a they don't have you know they don't have a connect there they're like you you couldn't possibly be the couple we're talking to (laughs) it's like well i have news for you disability looks like a whole lot of things that's for sure so is this a matter in your opinion of a lack of understanding at the government level and or at the agency level okay yeah, I think there there is that. Like when we look at politicians and whatnot, we look generally at an able-bodied, um, fully functional, okay in society type person. We don't see a person who looks like me. You know, um, we don't hear a person who talks like me. You know, uh, it's so there's a lot of misrepresentation, specifically because there's no opportunity to see any of this. People. 
when and when I talk to political offices, they're all like, okay, I need the tiniest problem aspect of the problem so I can go and handle that. So they don't have any ability even, time-wise or otherwise, to grasp the levels of difficulty that people like me experience. You know? And, and they – so there's no political will. When you can't spend the time on the problem and it doesn't apply to your house, then – that translates all, all the way to the top. There's no political will. So that means a whole lot of people get missed. It means people like me end up out in Confederation building, you know, in a tent because that's the next step. It, you know, there's generally speaking, whether it be a lack of understanding or a lack of coordination between one department or another, left hand, right hand, then that's yep. where we end up here. Uh, just before we take a break for the news, I'll give you the final thoughts. Angie, go right ahead. No, um, I, I would really like to be able to see more people who are in positions like mine being able to actually have opportunities of, of proper engagement. You know, like when we talk about autistic-led initiatives, that's a very real concept that I wish they would take seriously. And they would actually, you know, like, I mean, there's room for much better discussion and action than we have at this point. I mean, it's the fact that we end up with people who get no care because they can't verbalize that they need care. You know, like that little boy who couldn't say that he needed to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. There's endless examples. Uh, Good to have you on the show, Angie. I appreciate the time. You too. Take care. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right, there you go. It paints a pretty clear picture. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, the newly elected leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador is Tony Wakeham. He's in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port Port. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well this morning, thanks. How about you? Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Before we get into the details and the issues facing the people of the province, I use the word low-key about this leadership contest. You know, unlike some leadership uh, d- uh, contests or battles in years past, they sometimes became quite heated and quite hotly contested. You know, I think of the Grimes effort contest, which was really divisive. Was there a concerted effort amongst the three, yourself, Mr. Manning, Mr. Parrott, or did it just so happen to unfold this way? I think what it is, uh, we were ultimately focused on the issues that were that mattered to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and, uh, you know, three great candidates, uh, respect for each other, but all bringing messages, perhaps in a different way, but certainly listening to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador and the concerns that are out there around health care and, and cost of living. And I think what's amazing when you think about the fact that over 10,000 people signed up to vote, but the amazing statistic is that over 90% of them actually voted. So that, to me, is a clear indication that people of the province are looking for change, and they're engaged. And while it was low-key from a point of view of uh, arguing among ourselves or anything like that, we were all extremely focused on the issues that are, that are hurting people in our province right now. 
Did you learn any particular type of lesson in your first go-around to become the leader? You lost Chess Crosby back in 2018. There was obviously a distinct difference in style, possibly, and maybe not a whole lot of difference in policy. But did you learn anything there that you incorporated here? Well, I think one of the things that uh, that happened the first time I ran, I was very new to, to politics. I, I did not have a seat in the House of Assembly, and uh, I was late to the game. So that was part of the challenge for me at the time in identifying voters and getting out there and getting my message across. Perhaps I was not as well known across the province at the time. The advantage of uh, sitting in the House of Assembly certainly has allowed me to not only represent uh, the district of Stephenville, Port-au-Port, but to also speak on other matters that matter to people all over the province. And uh, and I've done that, and I think this confidence uh, in me and voting me in as the leader is a reflection of the work that I've done. When we all know the issues, the health care, housing, cost of living, are you bringing anything specifically to the table here? Because when I spoke with David Brazel, who was the interim leader uh, one day last week, talking about the need for more collaborative approach. So what does that look like under a Tony Wakeham leadership? Like, is there anything specifically? Let's talk, uh, start with cost of living. Well, absolutely. I think there are the key things that the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, the Liberal government, has imposed on people that they really start to uh, to rethink. I mean, their their program on uh, sugar tax was rethink your drink. I think their program now should be rethink your tax. Uh, if we're going, we all understand the impact that too much sugar has on people. But I think if we really want people to help people with their better health outcomes, then let's educate. Let's use education, not taxation. You know, it's the same argument on the whole carbon tax piece. The carbon tax, I think, has hurt Newfoundlanders and Labradorians as a province more, perhaps, than any other province in Canada because of our location and how our goods come in over ships and the transportation costs and everything associated with it. And we all hear those stories every single day about costs. So I think, you know, it's it's, it's got to be about how do we find ways to to get rid of the carbon tax? How do we find ways to, imp- to reduce the impact on people? Those are the things, like the currently the government has a eight cents a liter off on, on gas price. I think it has an expiry date. I think that should be should be there. It should stay there. Let's dig into a couple of those. So the sugar tax, the, even the province, the, the governing liberals, their forecast was about $9 million in revenue, came up with 11, which kind of means that people didn't change their habits and or add in the fact that some of the products we thought were exempt weren't eventually. So it's hard to know. Carbon tax. Let's just do a couple of hypotheticals here. There's going to be a federal election at some point. And let's say the polls hold true and the conservatives win the seat of government here and the so-called axe tax takes place. Then it'll be probably left up to the province to do something about emission control. So do you think that there would be no price pressure on emissions and price of fuel? I don't think it belongs on home heating fuel, but are you saying there would be no additional taxes or whatever the proper word is here because it's not even you know the courts have said it's not even necessarily a tax so what would you do well first of all i think we have we all understand that right now there is no evidence that a carbon tax has actually reduced canada's carbon emissions or or or, or had any effect on climate change other than to take money out of people's pockets so for me again it's not about uh, it's about using technology not taxation so let's talk about the great opportunities that newfoundland and labrador has not just for our own province but for the country. But let's just add into it. The Bank of Canada and uh, the PBO say that around 80% of Canadians get more back than they actually spent on carbon tax imposition. So in some cases, people might be worse off, which is a 
strange set of affairs, but <laughs> that begs the question: Why are you charging it in the beginning? In the beginning, because you can, you and I both know that when government sets up taxation like this, it costs them millions of dollars to collect it and millions of dollars to pay it back. So why are we doing that in the first place? So what would you do? So what I would be focused on is cleaner energy initiatives like hydroelectricity development. I mean, we're primed here in this province of Newfoundland and Labrador to be able to be leaders in our country on that. We also know that there are other things on our horizon like windmills and, and those type of things. So I think there are other options out there that we should be considering. But simply taking the approach that you're going to implement a tax on the people, that's that's an easy way out, and it hurts people. And it's not only hurting them at a gas station or, or anywhere else. It's hurting them when you go to the grocery store. It's, been, it's causing inflation to rise, which inflation causes the Bank of Canada rate to rise. So it's a whole net effect of what this carbon tax has done to people. Carbon tax uh, and its relationship with the grocery stores. Again, not my numbers between Stats Canada, Back in Canada. They paint a very different picture. Say, for instance, that Mr. Poliev talks about when we go to the grocery store. They use really much smaller numbers, including it adds 0.15% to inflation, adds 0.40 cents, 40 cents to every $200 spent on groceries. So do you think we're getting a clear picture of what a carbon tax uh, implication is? Because people, when polled, I don't think it even matters what tax you say. Do people want to pay less tax? The answer is yes. So do you think we actually have a clear picture of what carbon tax means? Well, I think what, what it has meant, I think for us, we know directly what it's meant in terms of the cost of transportation of goods and services to our province. So I would think then and argue that the cost of transportation alone has significantly increased because of the carbon tax. And that, in effect, has had a significant impact on households in Newfoundland and Labrador because we hear talk of it all the time. I mean, even it wasn't that long ago that Marine Atlantic wanted to add another fuel surcharge to, uh, to the cost of goods coming into Newfoundland and Labrador. And that's another thing. That's been temporarily delayed. It should be eliminated. We shouldn't even be talking about, oh, it might come back again. That should be eliminated. But let me give you a quick example on when we talk about inflation and the impacts on on pricing, on sugar tax. A lady came in my office the other day with a container, two containers of Tang that she had purchased at the store that were on sale, two for $4.00. So she, because she doesn't have a lot of money, this is a product that she thought she could afford to buy and use. She went to the counter to pay for that product. And instead of paying the $4 plus HST, when it was rang in by the cashier, it was over $16. And you know what? Over $11 was sugar tax because they base it not on the product itself price, but on how many liters this powder can produce. Imagine taking a $4 item, going to the checkout, and paying over $11 in sugar tax. And then to add insult to injury, they charge HST on the $11 on the carbon tax. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about people going to their grocery store with examples like this and examples right across this province. You know, some of the issues we're talking about, of course, is specifically carbon tax as a federal initiative. We used to be on our own provincial scheme. The money was collected by the province. Now the exact opposite is collected by the feds. You know, we're hearing a lot from Mr. Poliev, who was obviously an actively campaigning, which is, you know, his druthers. He can do as he sees fit. What do you make of Mr. Poliev? I think, you know, when I've talked about uh, relationships with federal parties and I've talked about I'm not interested in cozy relationships, I'm interested in respectful relationships. I'm interested in working with anyone who will put Newfoundland and Labrador and treat us as an equal partner and allow us, 
because a fundamental principle for me has been and will continue to be that the resources of Newfoundland and Labrador, the principal beneficiary of those resources have to be the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, whether it's our fishery, whether it's our oil and gas, whether it's our hydroelectricity whether it's our mining. But that that's the principle, fundamental principle for me. It's not that we're, we're, we're part of a country. We want to be part of a country. But we also want to make sure that this fundamental principle has to be in place, no matter what we do. You know, there's a lot made of the relationship between Premier Fury and Prime Minister Trudeau. What will your relationship look like with Mr. Poliev? Because, you know, there's a distinct difference between the Conservative Party of Canada, where they come down on a lot of issues, especially social issues, versus what the PC party has talked about, has represented over the course of, let's say, the last couple of decades. So what does your relationship look like with him if indeed he wins the seat of government? Again, again I will go back and say that we will have a respectful relationship, and, uh, and that relationship will depend upon exactly what happens to the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and the impacts that the federal government decisions have on the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Right now, I can tell you that the things that the liberal government, the federal liberal government in Ottawa and the provincial liberal government here in Newfoundland and Labrador have done have hurt people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Their taxation policies have hurt Newfoundland and Labradorians. The fact that our own province has no poverty reduction strategy has hurt Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. There are lots of things. Today they announced a new housing strategy. Well, they announced back in 2017 the throne speech that they were going to develop a housing strategy. Why did it take eight years to develop? Fair question. I've been talking about that uh, virtually every single day on the show. Uh, a couple of quick ones. You know, there's been a lot in the news recently about public procurement. And fair enough. You know, we just had to revisit an RFP for an urgent care clinic. There were seven bidders. They all came in over. There is an optics issue here as well, isn't there? Because there people will point to certain construction companies or others that seem to get the government contracts. Most of that is all tied directly back to camp, uh, campaign finance. Would you support campaign finance reform in this problem? because I think it creates more problems than it solves with the current structure. It's a bit of the wild, wild west out there. 100%. I have talked about that as I've campaigned around and talked about the ideas that what we need to be able to do. And we and, and there's lots of talk about democratic reform, but I think that's where it starts. It starts with a level playing field. What we need in this province is more people being able to afford or put their names on a ballot without having to worry about how they might pay for it. One suggestion has been made. Maybe one of the things we could do, for example, is to turn around and say that there will be the cap on anybody entering a political race is the same, whether it's 25000 or 30000 But let's also consider as a province whether or not if you get a certain percentage of the vote, then maybe some of that money or all of that money gets reimbursed back to you by the government. Take the politics out of it. Take the take the business end of it out of it. There are different ways of looking at it. I mean, I'm, I think there are a lot of suggestions and a lot of ideas out there, but I think the first thing we got to do is be serious about it. What's the level of election preparedness? You know, back when the uh, Liberals won in 2015, there was a lot of soul-searching inside your party. You know, the Liberals' district offices were a little bit more fluid and a bit more operational. They had the electronic list, very much different than some of the preparedness for some of your offices. If the election was called today, is the party not necessarily you, but the party at large, because there's a lot of moving parts in an election. Would the party be prepared today? I think our party, Patty, we went into uh, this weekend, our AGM, on Friday with three different teams. We came out Saturday night with one, one united team. We went in, over 10,000 people registered to vote in our leadership campaign. Over 90% of them have voted. 
the people of Newfoundland and Labrador are ready for a change, and the PC Party of Newfoundland and Labrador are ready to deliver that change. Very quickly, you've got experience in healthcare at the administrative level. We've heard a full suite of incentives, financial and otherwise, to uh, encourage or to bring healthcare professionals to the province. We've traveled abroad to do the exact same thing. Is there any one piece of the puzzle missing that you would implement? Patty, right now I've talked about it during my campaign and I continue to talk about it. There are a couple of key points. One is the idea of retention. I think that every student currently enrolled in the healthcare program in our province, whether it's in a college system or whether it's in a university, every single one of those students should be offered a full-time job right now. Let's not wait until they graduate. Let's not wait until they're on their way out. Let's recruit them on the way in. And that's, that's where we need to start. And the other piece, of course, is the whole medical transportation to help with that. There are so many things that we can be doing. Some of the things we can be doing don't even require new money, whether it's discharge planning, whether it's getting our long-term care beds open so we can free up acute care beds so we can eliminate some of the wait times. Yeah, that's a staffing issue, isn't it? Yeah, there's some of that is a staff. But when they talk about staffing issues, they never talk about the actual staff they need. They talk, we always hear nurses. But don't forget, nurses. there's registered nurses, there's licensed practical nurses, there's 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 other providers that need to be put in place. So we need to know exactly as a province, where is the logjam? What are we missing? Because in long-term care, the staffing model is different than acute care. But nobody, we've never gotten the details of that. Yeah, personal care attendance, there's there's a lot exactly. to it. Last one, you talk about professional training schools, specifically at Memorial University, you know, expanded number of seats at Mons Med School, same with the IRN training, but there's lots of disciplines, disciplines being uh, trained there. When the provincial government held back some $68 million and the impact that had on tuition, would you reinstate some of that money? Because it's one thing for Jack Daly to continue on with the all model, but not for new entrants. So it may indeed be a hurdle that is really difficult to overcome. And if we don't get it right in post-secondary, and I would suggest K-12, we are creating a massive problem that is just a couple of corners away. Our education system is in is in uh, crisis as well now. I mean, that's another one that's been put in crisis. Uh, when we went to school, I'm sure most of the time, if a school was closed, it was closed because of a storm or it was closed because of a teacher's workshop. Nowadays, we see schools being closed because they don't have enough teachers. The teachers that are currently working in the schools, we need to make sure they have the resources to do their jobs. And we need to make sure that the students going to school have the supports they need. When it comes to uh, tuition at MUN and those things, on this campaign, I've talked about the fact that if you graduate from a college or our university, when we form government, if you file your income tax in Newfoundland and Labrador, we'll give you your money back over seven years. People will ask you, how can you afford to do that? Two things. One, I don't think we can afford not to, but think about it. The fact that they will stay in Newfoundland and Labrador and file their income tax in Newfoundland and Labrador means, number one, they go to work here, and number two, the government gets the benefit of taxation on all of those jobs. So I think we've got to get creative here. It's not simply about one thing or the other. We've got to have lots of ideas. But the Confederation building is not where we generate those ideas. Confederation building should be the place to where we implement ideas that are coming from the people that are working out in the system, that are out there in small businesses and large businesses and employed and working in our health system and working in our education system. And if we start to listen to them, I will tell you, you will get the ideas that you will need to fix this system. Very, very quickly, and I'm way over time. You also said there needs to be a change in how the House of Assembly does business. Give me one example. I would like to see, for example, when we introduce legislation, we're going to 
do legislation today this afternoon they're talking about bringing in legislation and we're getting a we we had a briefing on it on friday i think that any legislation coming to the house of assembly should be at least a two-week period given to us at least two weeks in advance so that uh, the people on the other side of all of us that are in other parties can have an opportunity to do real research and then when we go into debate this legislation will be better informed and because it shouldn't be about politics it has to be about making legislation that benefits the people in newfoundland and labrador appreciate the time tony thanks for this thank you patty take care bye-bye tony wakeham's the new leader of the pc party of newfoundland and labrador leader of the official opposition final break of the morning don't go away welcome back to the show final word goes to line number one caller you're on the air Oh, hi, Patty. Yes. I'm just calling about the uh, climate uh, incentive. I didn't didn't receive it on Friday, but I've been calling CRA and I've been calling two numbers, and the response that I get every time I call, uh, they're closed and they'll be open between Monday and Friday. I'm not sure why that would be. And, of course, like yeah. like the other checks, GST rebates or what have you, they ask people to wait 10 days uh, before oh, really? they call because if you get it in the mail, there might be just a built-in Canadian mail. No, account. I don't. Okay. I know it's direct Fair enough. deposit. Yeah, so... It's direct deposit. And, of course, you're supposed to get it on the 15th, so that might mean you yes. get it today or tomorrow because the 15th, of course, fell on the weekend. So that's some of the issues that people repeatedly face here. We're told if the date falls on the weekend, it will be the next one or two business days after said weekend so it should be today yeah. or tomorrow today or tomorrow yeah that's what they tell me every time i ask the same question oh very good because mine is direct deposit now i don't get it in the mail right fair yeah yeah okay perfect thank you so much let me know tomorrow if you don't get it I will, Patty. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, there there was the issue uh, with the HST rebate there on the 5th as well. People waited a long time before they got it. I don't know why, because if you have direct deposit, it should be as simple at 12.01 in the morning while we're all tucked away in the bunk. The direct deposit should happen just automatically. shouldn't be a problem. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.